welcome to Atwood Unleashed number 88, co-hosted by Stephen Knight. Huge thank you for coming back again, Stephen. How's your week been? Wonderful. Always a pleasure to come here and uh, do a sort of speed dating round with all sorts of interesting people. <laughs> speaking, of, speaking of interesting people, we have got seven guests on the show tonight. First two hours on YouTube and then hours three and four on Patreon. Link for Patreon is in the description box if you want to join us on our community over there. From 5.45 to 6, we're going to be talking about some of tonight's guests as well as the news of the week. And then, oh yes. <laughs> it was only a month ago, I think, we had three of our heaviest hitters in the history of the channel on exposing the NWO. And they are back to add a little bit more about Klaus Schwab. The world's most powerful CEOs, delegates and state heads for the World Economic Forum in Davos. And I am talking about macroaggressions host and author Charlie Robinson, YouTuber and researcher Jay Dyer, and independent filmmaker and podcaster David Whitehead. We're going to be dissecting how the tyrannical world views of Klaus and the WEF are manipulating us into shaping the Hunger Games Society of the Wet Dreams. Wow. All right, and then at seven o'clock, Stephen's got Jeff Bellinger. Yeah, Jeff Ballinger will be joining us. Uh, he's an author, adventurer, and explorer of the unexplained. Um, he's a leading expert on the paranormal, ghost, UFOs, folklore, and legends. He, he hosts the uh, Emmy-nominated series New England Legends and co-host with Ray Auger, the New England Legends podcast. Uh, he's also a writer, researcher for Ghost Adventures, and has appeared on several episodes. That'll be interesting. Uh, and then from 7.30 to 8, uh, we'll be looking at the recent Marilyn Manson news, which is very interesting. We just uh, had the news today that he settled a, uh, a sort of sexual assault rape uh, case. Uh, so YouTuber Colonel Kurtz, who has covered the case uh, since the very start, will be coming on to discuss the settlement uh, with the alleged victim, uh, Esme Bianco. And I believe we switch over to Patreon. Uh, yeah, I think you've got the first one on Patreon. Yeah, so from 10 past 8 on Patreon, uh, I'll be speaking to best-selling author and former president of Oklahoma, Oklahoma Wesleyan University, Dr. Everett Piper. Um, Piper served as president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University for a total of 17 years, during which time he has led the school from relative obscurity to a position of national recognition and influence. So Piper uh, presently serves as a contributing columnist uh, for the Washington Times. Uh, his commentary on religion, education, leadership and politics uh, is featured in local and national uh, media outlets. And uh, guess what? It's me again afterwards, isn't it? Uh, I'll be speaking to investigative journalist uh, Callum Smiles. Uh, he was in Davos last week uh, reporting for Rebel News on the World Economic Forum. Uh, some of Callum's clips have gone viral, including one where he asked climate activist Greta Thunberg about her arrest in Germany. Uh, and he, his, his opinion that it seemed like an elaborate photo op. Uh, additionally, Callum will be speaking to us about what happened at the World Economic Forum and what the key takeaways were from the summit. And then the final guest of the night from 9.10 to 10.10 10 is... 
from our famous Making a Murderer series on Netflix, which many of you commented on at the time. We did loads of videos on it. I'm <clears throat> talking Jerry Buting. He was one of the white knights in the defense team, the, the lawyer. And he's got over 35 years experience in criminal defense law. He gained worldwide respect and went on a international tour. Well, I met him in London when he did, when Making a Murderer came out. It was so viral and people all over the world were disgusted by the scum in the justice system, the corrupt psychopaths framing innocent people, especially poor Brendan Dassey, a mentally challenged kid with a IQ, I think, in the 60s or 70s, telling him if he confesses to a murder, he can just go home and watch WrestleMania. What utter low-life trash so-called detectives would do that to a kid. Anyway, Jerry is an outspoken voice for criminal justice reform, including problems of mass incarceration, a flawed jury system, unreliable forensic science and police and prosecutor bias or misconduct. He's going to be providing us with updates on the recent documents that Stephen Avery's lawyer Kathleen Zellner has just filed. I'm very curious to find out what Zellner's filed. And we did some polls. Let me see if I can find the uh, results of our polls for this week. We put up, do you want Trump? Do you, are you glad that Trump's coming back to Twitter? And on the community wall, let's have a look what the votes on that one were. Right. Trump. People are ecstatic that Trump wants to end an exclusive deal with Truth Social and get back on Twitter. 36% ecstatic. 5% devastated. 50% <laughs> don't care. 2% over. Let's see. Oh, huge thank you to all the viewers as well. The subs, we hit. 750,000 subscribers a couple of days ago, finally at three quarters of a mil. Wow. And that was, a lot of that was on the back of Meghan Markle content. I know some of you are sick of it, but we did get 14 million views on that stuff, and it has brought in a lot of new subs. And then other polls we did, how many people do you truly trust? One to two came in at 65%. Three to five came in at 29%. Six plus at six percent, but a lot of people put where the hell is the zero? <laughs> <laughs> so people have been burned there, haven't they? <laughs> and um, do you think that Meghan Markle has mistreated her family, including not inviting them to the royal wedding? Yes, mistreated them, they should have been at the wedding 84 percent. No mistreatment, she didn't need to invite them 12 percent over four percent. So, of any of the news stories of the week, uh Stood out to you, Stephen? I think the only one that's really piqued my interest is, is this Marilyn Manson story that um, that we're going to cover later on in the show. I don't know if it's worth also mentioning. Are you a big fan of Rick and Morty at all? Have you seen the news regarding that? No. What is the news? The creator, the guy who's the basically the chief writer and does the majority of the voices, including Rick and Morty, has been fired from the show and they're going to recast him. People have been joking that the show is just going to be called And now because <laughs> he's so influential and in involved. But he's got a domestic abuse court case pending. There's been no outcome on this yet, so it seems like a preemptive decision. So I'm not sure what will happen there. So do you know what the 
find details of the uh, domestic abuse case, uh, what it revolves around, or...? Apparently, they're sealed documents, so you can't really get the details. Um, so he, he's he's obviously maintaining his innocence. He's, uh, he's certainly his legal team is. Um, so we'll see what will what will come of that. There was some information there that suggested that he had to sort of relinquish firearm ownership for something like eighteen months. So they may that may have been involved at some point. I don't know. I'm not sure what the laws are there, but it's just one of them things, isn't it, where people seem to be preemptively treated as if they're guilty before the verdicts in in terms of their career and employment. I don't know where the line is there in terms of fairness. Happens a lot, especially with trial by media. So on the subject of... I'll just do a quick poll then. Um, put a one in the chat if you're sick of Meghan Markle content. Put a two in the chat if you can't get enough Meghan Markle content. And I'll give you some more right away. So this book, Spur by Prince Harry... Did you see the revelation, Stephen? He's claiming that he wiped out a bunch of Taliban. He's done. Coke yeah, I'm very surprised about stuff. that. Very not surprised that that's what happened, but I'm very surprised he's been so vocal about it. You usually find people who are serious and passionate about the military are kind of very stoic about them kind of details, uh, and he's certainly not considered the security implications of being so vocal about murdering not murdering of course he's doing his job but obviously killing a lot of uh what are essentially just muslim insurgents that have a lot of support in europe and, and globally so i think he's just increased his own security concerns quite a lot yeah definitely look at uh salman rushdie what happened to him yeah and all he did was write a book he's not killed anyone so <laughs> there you go <laughs> Looks like Charlie Robertson is about to come in. Do you want to bail in, Stephen? I'll bring him in. Yeah, yeah. Have a good chat, and I'll see you at All right. seven. Thank you. Thanks, Stephen. Cheers. Cheers. Hey, Charlie, you're the first of the heavyweights to come in. We've got well, the uh, three of you I'm... back. The last one went really viral. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. It was a great team. And you know, it's funny. Since then, I have recorded... David and Jay for macroaggressions, and this Sunday you're you're the guest on macroaggressions. Your episode, cool. Is out. Yeah, cool. So Thank we're you. just I'm just working right through the whole crowd here. <laughs> but, Before uh, we deconstruct Klaus Schwab and the WEF, do you want to just remind the viewers about your mission, Charlie? <laughs> my my mission, <laughs> should I choose to accept it? is to try and bring sanity back into this world. It is not going well, I assure you. <laughs> no, I write I write books. I've written three books, The Octopus of Global Control, The Controlled Demolition of the American Empire, and Hypocrisy, Surviving in a World of Cultural Double Standards. So I wrote books, would go out on podcasts to promote the books, and eventually that just turned into my own podcast, Macroaggressions. And uh, that goes out twice a week and uh, once as an audio or once as an interview, once as a monologue, it goes out in audio format. It goes out in video format. So people that are interested, they can go get it. It's free. You can, you know, just listen to it at your leisure. So I was watching the Patrick Bet David podcast today and they were talking about old Klaus and they showed this clip where Klaus said it because of A, B and C. The world now is at the at the point where the whole world is going to get wiped out, really. And and they were like, he sounds like one of those preachers where if you don't do what I say, you're going to burn in hell. Sign up for my belief system, or you're going to burn in hell for eternity. Do you, do you think that's a good analogy? 
It's not too far off. I mean, you got to have good, you got, we're out because you got to have good hair for it. You're right. You got to have good hair and you got to, you know, do the whole thing. Look, there's a, there's a big overlap between organized religion and organized government. You've got to believe absurdities in some cases too, in order to get on board with the program. And if you are not on board with the program, they have ways to make you get on board with the program. And that's the, that's the devious part. So I'm always, uh, I'm always concerned about, um, you know, I, I mean, I think it's funny that, 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 uh, that religion, you know, the idea, the concept of like this religious preacher who's going to, you know, you can't talk to God, but I can talk to God and I'll talk to him and I'll tell him what you said, you know, but you got to give me money. And then you go and you hear Klaus and Klaus is like, the world's going to end. And you're like, oh my God, really? Well, how? He's like, well, it's very complicated and I could explain it to you, but what I'm going to need you to do is I'm just going to need you to give me a, a bunch of money and get on board with the plan. And then I, I promise I'll explain it to you later. You're like, it just sounds very sketchy, the whole thing. <laughs> so what, what's happening last week? These guys have had a meeting of these psychopaths. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They get together. I mean, well, they also had the hookers flown in. We saw we saw that, right? <laughs> because you can't have a good conference. I mean, yeah, I listen, I lived in Vegas for 10 years. We all know that when the when 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 big conferences, consumer electronics show comes to town, wink wink, we know what that means. And when the World Economic Forum flies into Davos for their big meeting, you know, the same thing happens too. But it really at, at its core, what these guys are trying to do is they're <laughs> They're trying to reimagine society. They want them in charge. They want uh, you to be very afraid of something, whatever that is. You know, we'll tell you what it is later, but it's you're definitely going to have to be afraid of something. And and once you're afraid of that something, then the best way for you to fight it is to not really dig into it too much, but just outsource your critical thinking to someone else. Don't don't bother don't bother really digging deep into this. But you have to be afraid. You need to give up your rights and you need to pay more in taxes. And if you do those things, then you're going to be fine. But if you if you don't, then this whole process is going to take even longer. We're going to have to start from the beginning and 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 this whole thing's just going to take forever. So so wear your masks and pay your taxes and eat the bugs and do all the things we tell you to do in this whole pro this whole thing. This raping and pillaging will be over a lot quicker if you just do what we told you to do. <laughs> What do you think about Rob Carey's observation? Distraction keeps you arguing about topics they give you so you stop asking the real questions. Boy, it's just that's just exactly what's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, if they they know we're going to argue and fight about something. So they throw out this is the the limited hangout component, right? They throw out like the some small issue that doesn't really matter one way or the other and we can we're allowed to fight vigorously about that issue but if you get outside of that issue and you start talking about the other things the issues they don't want you to talk about then you get silenced and demonetized and thrown off of platforms and they try to paint you as as a as a kook but but really if you boil it down it's just you got you want to i want to ask different questions than the media wants to ask that's all. That's really what it boils down to. And you see these guys from like Rebel News and in, in in Canada doing a doing a good job of chasing chasing these maniacs down on the streets and saying, "Well, you know who?" They say, "Well, what what news organization are you with?" They say, "Well, I'm with an independent broadcasting," and they just laugh because they know that means nothing to them. 
And that's the only place where you're going to actually get the conversations to happen is with independent journalists because they'll ask the questions that won't get them invited back next year, you know, whereas the corporate controlled media is going to ask them an acceptable line of question. What do you think about the, um, you know, what steps have you put in place at this meeting to make sure that the, the temperature of the planet doesn't go up a, a half a degree? And they say, well, we've had all these great meetings and we put all of these proposals and we've, we've talked about X, Y, and Z, and we've got this great new plan and it's going to, you know, and so you're allowed to talk about that stuff all day long. You're not allowed to talk about why the farms are going away and why there's, um, and why we're, you know, we're all just so I, my legs are killing me, Sean, from standing with Ukraine for this whole year, you know, like, can I sit down now? Can I sit with Ukraine? Is that possible? You know, so, so the whole thing is, is, is crazy. Uh Oh, there he is. Right. We got powerhouse number two, David Whitehead on the screen. Thank you for coming on brother. Hey Sean, just, how's it going? Hey boys. Thanks hey. for having me back. Yeah, the last thing we did, man, it, it went mental. People like you got to get these guys back on ASAP. Can you just remind the viewers about what you do, David? Uh, well, I talk about a lot of stuff over on my podcast. You can get everything that I do over at dwtruthwarrior.com. Uh, I do weekly shows. I also host a show called Earth Chronicles with my good friend Josh Reed, which is going to start after this show, actually, over on Badlands Media which is a new hop in media on Rumble. And then I'm working on a documentary series called Cult of the Medics. Uh, it's available for free and people can check that out at cultofmedics.com. And that's a deep dive into all this stuff with the Great Reset, the globalist agenda, the medical system, and actually getting into the world of the occult uh, when it comes to the history of that system. So I do a bit of everything and I'm just a guy trying to find out, you know, what's the truth, what's going on and uh, what can we do to save ourselves from all this tyranny that's happening more and more every day? So what is your take on this recent Davos meeting? Well, I was really happy to see and glad Charlie was bringing it up as I jumped in. I overheard he was talking about Rebel News, which is one of our Canadian alternative media organizations here. I'm glad they had some uh, journalists on the ground to start getting mics into these people's faces. Um We've had some interesting things happen. I wasn't expecting Trudeau not to show up to this because he absolutely loves to be part of this clique. And uh, I'm wondering what's what's really going on because right now he's in Hamilton and there's basically a trucker convoy that met, met up with wherever he was going out for dinner. And there's literally hundreds of people with Canadian flags just shouting at him. So Trudeau can't walk the streets in this country anymore. I don't believe, I'm not sure if Macron made it to the Davos meeting or not. I heard that he didn't, but I, I didn't follow it closely enough. Um, Schwab, we thought at first that he wasn't going to go, but it turned out he did go. George Soros didn't make it. Um, he had some kind of a scheduling conflict, apparently. Probably another globalist meeting he had to attend to. Who knows? Put out some fires. Uh, but yeah, getting the journalists that are out there, you know, putting their camera in front of uh, Bourla, the head of Pfizer who I couldn't help but notice the other day, uh, he was sitting in the same interview booth as Bill Gates when Bill Gates a few years back was being interviewed and talking about how vaccines were his biggest cash cow investment ever. Um, and so I thought it was really kind of ironic in a dark, twisted way that they had Bourla sitting there getting interviewed in the exact same booth. And he's standing there saying, yep, 
there's no problems at all. It's all good. This is safe and effective and everything. And you're just like, oh my God, he has to lie at this point. Um, and then he's yeah, in the champagne were, room. That's where they do that interview in the <laughs> champagne room where, the, where they just make it rain on him. They just make it rain. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and so I guess what we're seeing is a lot more uh, of this stuff just coming out to the surface. I'm happy to see it because now I've got friends of mine who never looked at this stuff that are messaging me and going, dude, like I used to think you were crazy talking about all this like world government <laughs> stuff and crazy conspiracy stuff. And like, it's happening. They're saying it out loud. I'm like, I know I've been trying to tell you this for years, but Hey, it's, this is the time. I think the world economic forum is losing its stock. I think everybody's kind of catching on to it. It's kind of a joke at this point and we should treat it as a joke and we should laugh and uh, keep pointing the cameras at these people and just let them be themselves. They're doing a great job waking everybody up for us. Eh? Hey, Jay, thanks for coming back so soon. Can you just tell the viewers a little bit about you and what you think of the recent Davos meeting? Yeah, thank you. Uh, glad to be back. Um, I'm Jay Dyer. I do a lot of movie analysis, do a lot of geopolitical analysis. Uh, <clears throat> just uh, um, got back from uh, being on TimCast. You can go check that out if you want on YouTube. Um, yeah, I think Davos this year was kind of a... a a failure because uh you know they've had so much attention there's been so many clips uh, i think the most damaging thing has been people just taking these little clips putting them across social media of all the goobers at davos saying and and just putting out the most outlandish stuff uh you know tony blair who's himself a fabian socialist by by confession saying that we need to have tracking and tracing for everybody in every aspect of life one of these other guys saying that we need to uh track and trace everything that you eat keeping up with your your carbon footprint in terms of your food uh and your internet uh, access and what you look at all the stuff that it's all and he says we're going to be rolling this out now so i think that what's happened is that they've seen so much bad publicity in the last year in terms of the the internet that a lot of people didn't show up a lot of people were hesitant about it because it looks bad but they're just gonna there's they'll just create some other thing right they'll just make some other thing if davos loses steam and it'll be the exact same thing but all the same people just under some other name or they'll just have other secret meetings right over to charlie to add on to that then well they do have these as as jay mentioned they do have these these other uh groups that they go to maybe that's where, like like david said maybe that's where uh, soros was he was held up he had to get to aspen institute or he had to get to bilderberg or wherever you know i mean these things are only hidden to the extent that we choose not to go looking for them but they're for the most part out in the open this has been going on for a long long time i think the first time people got an idea that these lunatics get together in in in, in private to discuss these things was watching the the um bohemian grove alex jones video you know them sneaking in and seeing the moloch and all that stuff and people what is this so we know it's there it is cartoonish for sure but but that hides a very serious uh undertone that's that's happening which is that these guys you know it's one thing if the four of us just go out to a bar tonight we get drunk and we start talking about how we're going to take over the world and depopulate and everything we would go home after that and then none of that would happen because we're not in a position to make those things happen but these people unfortunately are in a position to make 
maybe not everything, but a lot of the things that they're talking about happen. They have these networks established. So it makes them far more dangerous than the rest of us uh, because because not only can they have these fantasies of world takeover, but they're also positioned to start to do something about it. And I think that's what separates the the wannabes from the from the real players in this industry is that we, you know, it's one thing to just joke with your buddies about how you're going to, you know, how it would be so much easier for traffic if we had less people. It's quite another thing to institute a policy where you're reducing food supplies to people in order to make that a reality. David, then what is your interpretation of the media response to the summit? Well, I mean, the media response, uh, I take everything they do now with a grain of salt. I mean, we've learned our lesson, right? But it is a weird thing. They have to cover it, but they obviously have to slant it in a certain way. And that's why more and more people aren't even going to watch the news to learn about this stuff. They're going to alternative networks. Uh, they're probably watching more Tucker Carlson and some of these guys. But there's even better analysis out there that people are finding on platforms where there isn't as much censorship and people are actually having conversations like this. I mean, does the news media sit down and have these kind of deep conversations and pull in all these threads and offer all kinds of uh, sources and books to read and information and put links in the description? They don't do that. They just repeat the 4 a.m. talking points that they're handed from the top of the food chain. Um, if they do report on it, you can sometimes get data from the media. So that's what I like to do is take the data and then put it out. And another thing I like doing is actually finding mainstream media reports where they start to admit certain things like they won't put the whole context for you, but they'll admit certain things or they'll feature a video with some guy saying something like, oh, uh, gene editing. And we've just did this with mice. And now we're going to start doing it with actual humans or whatever. And they'll report on it. And then our job is to take it and go all right, let's put this in the context of what they said at the end that wasn't included in the report, which is that they're not just doing experiments trying to change the color of mice fur, they're doing genetic editing because they ultimately want to be able to genetically edit human beings, right? So, and they're saying that also, like what's his name, Yuval Harari Ferrari, he's out there saying, uh, that's exactly what we want to do. We want to edit, uh, we're going to be editing your brains. We're going to be editing your genes. We're going to be editing, uh, you know, every way part of your life. We're going to reset the world and we're going to reset you, you know? So the media is saying this stuff more and more, but you know, they're the lap dogs. They are basically run by three or four major corporations, a handful of very powerful investing firms, and basically the same people. They're all extensions of this Davos clique. Uh, but I think it also even goes well beyond uh, the, those guys that we see in the surface. Um, but we should pay attention to the media just because sometimes they are admitting things that you can catch them on. And then that's very powerful to hand to some of your, your more normie friends that are still just kind of coming out of the days. And you can say, hey, it wasn't me that said it. It wasn't at conspiracytheory.com or wherever you think we get stuff. This is from Reuters. This is from the Associated Press. This is from CBC News. Uh, they're starting to say it like, does that maybe interest you into looking deeper into it than obviously the media is ever going to tell you? So, Jay, what's your interpretation of the media around Davos? Uh, the media is uh, running these pieces that it doesn't exist as a conspiracy. And uh, it's it, there, I saw a great headline. It said uh, world leaders fly to Davos for summit. Conspiracy theorists claim it's to run the world. So the world leaders are flying to Davos to meet. They lead the world. 
but it's not a it's not a conspiracy to control or lead the world. I mean, it's like the the gaslighting is uh, in full effect from all the articles I've seen. I would like to play this as a little brief clip of this guy from Davos if you want to get an idea of what. So here he is. Here's here's Mr. Davos guy here, and here's what he technology and ability for consumers to measure their own carbon footprint. What does that mean? That's where are they traveling? How are they traveling? What are they eating? What are they consuming on the platform? So individual carbon footprint tracker. Mm. Stay tuned. We don't have it operational yet, but this is something that we're working on. So there you go. Everything that you do, controlled, rationed, rationing. I mean, are we in wartime? I guess we are. The war is the elites against the people. And then when you're in wartime, you get you get food rationing. And so this is all austerity, and that's uh, the, the media just gets out there and lies and acts like the, the, none of this exists, even though everybody can look at the clips that go viral, millions of views on, on Twitter, all the other uh, platforms, uh, Instagram, of people from Davos saying that we're going to enslave you, you're going to be locked down again. And I think uh, what's oh, well, you didn't ask about what's coming, but I think, uh, I mean, that's what the, the media is just there to lie and act like none of this exists and gaslight you. Charlie, could you give us some more about carbon footprint planning and also on uh, David's, uh, if you could add to David's transhumanism, genetic manipulation of the brain thing as well? Well, they would love to be able to control your your thoughts. And um, <laughs> they're damn close to it. They've already got you believing uh, impossibilities through the media, but that's not quite enough. I mean, if they can get you, if they can actually get somebody on the inside a chip on the inside to manipulate your brain they they most definitely will and part of what they want to do is with this manipulation is manipulate the your behavior it's behavior modification it's train dog training here they want to train us a, a variety of ways but one of the ways is you know if you do a good job you get a treat and if you don't do a good job you don't get a treat and the treat is food <laughs> they, and they will ration it. They've talked about breaking this down. I had a, a conversation with Celeste Solom about this, who used to work at FEMA years ago. And she was talking about how there's documentation to, about how the, these organizations want to micromanage you down to selling you individual calories. Like that's what they're talking about down to the, to just the caloric basics of, of, of how they quantify that and measure it and then just determine what the allotment is for you just the bare min minimum to keep you uh keep you going and keep you on board so there we go davos speaker calls for <laughs> one billion people to stop eating meat for yeah for innovation for the health of the health of the planet I wonder which one billion people are going to stop having to eat, eat meat. Is it them? I doubt it. I really doubt it. They will be dining on human flesh. No, no, no question. After this whole thing is over, but but they really do see the problem that a lot of people have with this is that it requires you to allow your mind to go to a really bad place, and people just don't want to think about that, or they just go, "That sounds crazy." None of us here are denying that this sounds crazy it all sounds crazy that is that is confirmed but don't let that discourage you from digging a little deeper because just just because it sounds crazy doesn't mean it isn't happening these guys write about it they talk openly about it they have meetings in davos where they plot it and plan it they have computer technology they have partnerships with silicon valley that's making the the concept of of uh 
breaking down social credit scores and 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 managing the food intake of people it's all going digital this is what they're they've been talking about this for a long time swallowing the rfid chips and managing the process of taking medicines and we can track you so of course you'll get the sales pitch for how this is going to save somebody it's going to save their life it's going to make them you know whatever whatever that is but the but like david mentioned you've got to you know, you take the, just the soundbite clip that the media puts out and then, but you've got to listen to the whole conversation. Cause at the end, that's where the, that's where the real meat is when they sit, when they start talking about the things that don't wind up on 60 minutes or, or in, on your nightly news as a little fun soundbite about how they're going to, we're working on MRNA technologies to cure cancer. And everyone goes, that's great. But they don't talk about the part where the MRNA technology is killing people. They just, they just leave that out. So it's, it's kind of up to us to learn how to decipher what they're talking about and, and, and make sure that we get all, as much of the information as, as we can, uh, because these guys definitely have a plan and, um, and it's, it's not good for us, unfortunately. Huge thank you to all the viewers jumping on. The viewership has just been rising steadily on this subject since we've got our free heavy hitters on. So if you do have a question, whether you're watching on Facebook, YouTube, wherever, in the world, put it in the comments or the chat and we'll get it to the panel. And I'll give the first one to David. It's from McCore67. Do you guys have any thoughts or ideas on how we, the people, are going to overcome this tyranny? Uh, I think that's the question, right? That's the question we've all been sitting with as we've watched this unfold. That's the question that uh, the moment I even started researching any of this stuff years ago, uh, I immediately started to think about that because that's what that's what you want to do. You see this problem. You see this growing around you and you're trying to think of a way out and um, all you can do is what what one person can do for now, which is continue to inform yourself, uh, work on your what you can do, like what is within your power to do. For me, it was start a podcast, start interviewing people, start doing research, start presenting that research and just trying to spread awareness because I realized like I come from I'm in Canada and anybody familiar with what happened here with the whole trucker convoy and they were freezing people's bank accounts and taking on political prisoners that hadn't actually broken any laws like they put people in solitary confinement under mischief that was all they had on them was just mischief and then they're in solitary confinement you know and these are like grandmas and just average people so you sit there and you go how could i as a canadian uh, stop what Justin Trudeau and his entire cabinet, which are just all puppets working for globalists like these Davos people. Uh, that's what they're doing to my country. Like, what does one man do? Well, what one man did to start the entire trucking convoy was one trucker got in and said, uh, guys, we're the ones that bring the food everywhere. We're the ones that are the distribution lines. Let's just, we should protest because that could really send a message to Ottawa. And even though it didn't like fully succeed, it succeeded in showing the rest of Canada that the people that were out there weren't alone. So I said, okay, go out and find other like-minded people that are aware of what's going on. And right now in Canada, I can tell you, and even in uh, on the island where I live in British Columbia, there are lots of groups getting together that are just trying to form community of, uh, especially when we were literally being like almost, it was, felt like we were being hunted down almost in Canada for a while because of our jab status. And so people rallied together. They started making these little potluck groups, exchange groups, uh, you know, just getting together with other people and sharing ideas. And it encompassed people from all walks of life. So you start with yourself. You start with 
you know, especially when it comes to your health, take care of your health. Your mental health is essential because you're no use to anybody if you're a basket case or you're too worn out or you're depressed or freaked out all the time. So work on that um, and then find others like you and do what you can. I've also been making an appeal to insiders uh, on almost every show. So because I know more and more people from the inside, from within these organizations, the media, the government, the police services, the military, the intelligence services everywhere, Hollywood, even a medical community. More and more of these people are starting to come forward with what they know. And uh, because with this whole Davos World Economic Forum thing encompasses so many different things and so many different scams rolled into one, you're getting people coming forward from different areas. And that's what we need as well is to keep encouraging people that do know things and know that this is wrong to come out and know that they're not just going to be all alone, that they have a support network all over the world of millions of people that are waking up, that are trying to do what they can. And nobody has the silver bullet. Nobody has the final answer, but sitting back and just watching it. um, it, it, I just, I feel like we can do, we can do better. We can get more information out to people. Like Jay was saying, those little clips, the people that are making those little tiny clips and sending them out and they're going viral, they're doing a service. uh, Just that, like that's one thing somebody can do sharing a show like this so that people can watch information that they're not getting because of the algorithm blocks or the fact that the media isn't talking about this stuff, uh, getting books out there, uh, getting conferences together. There's a lot of groups putting on conferences and, uh, people are really, it's getting the creativity of humanity to come out right now in the face of tyranny. It's what happened during the world wars. It's what's happened throughout history and throughout history. Just remember it was never the masses of people that ever turned the tide. Never, never, never. In fact, the masses of people are usually the ones taking us over the edge of the cliff. Um, It's always small groups of empowered individuals that have knowledge of what's going on, that have the the spirit of freedom within them, that are using their creativity in that moment of calamity to bring forward solutions. And so I don't know what the final answer is, but I was doing a show recently called The Fear of Freedom. And I was trying to do like a psychoanalysts, I brought in the work of Erich Fromm and some other thinkers on why people gravitate towards tyranny, why people might actually be petrified of freedom and might actually be calling these tyrants into being. And so what that is, is to say, maybe this means that the solution is starts with every single one of us. Like freedom is an inside job. It's not on a piece of paper. We got to build an inner constitution because if we don't have that uh, real understanding of freedom and why it's valuable and how to maintain it, then uh, we'll re- take care of these tyrants and they'll be replaced with a new batch of tyrants the next week, right? So uh, we have to change. We have to become aware and we have to want to live free if we're ever going to have a shot at it. All right, Jay. So Global is asking about a backlash against Google. Have you heard anything along those lines? Promoting uh, chat GBD to all countries, Bill Gates planning pandemic with eggs and dna well i mean we know that bill gates has had this tendency to try to buy up you know all the farmland in the united states he he owns a lot of the solutions that are then uh, presented after the problems which is the the problems that the system creates then they offer the solutions this is a classic model of like big scale con men you know the rockefellers did this where 
create a problem and then you offer the solution. Uh, there's that movie American Hustle, you know, with Jennifer Lawrence, where they bash out all the windows. And then the next day, the guys that, that own the, uh, the glass company come by and say, oh, you got a broken window. Well, maybe we could fix it. Uh, you know, the, the, I don't know about, I haven't seen a backlash against Google yet, but, um, I'm not too worried about the chat GPT thing. I think that's a bunch of propaganda in my view. I mean, it could be uh, something uh, dangerous in the future, but I mean, they asked it about me and it was like saying the most ridiculous things, like not even close to what I talk about. So, uh, one thing that's encouraging is I was at this event, uh, over the weekend and, Got to meet a, a lot of really cool people. And so you look, you see this. This is thousands of people at a live event. And guess what? She's up there talking about uh, somebody we just met, Mel K. She's up there talking about Epstein, Jeff Stein, Effrey, Elsa. <laughs> uh, and that's thousands of people in a giant auditorium hearing all of that. So that was encouraging wow. to me. I went to this event not knowing what was going on or what they were talking about. Uh, met some really, met, got to meet uh, Dr. Peter McCullough. But they're up there talking about real stuff to thousands of people live and that's what you know uh uh we were talking about here on the on this show was you know how can you fight against this live events keep sharing these clips share this show share our shows follow us share the books uh, i mean people do still read books out there um yeah i mean uh, move out to the country get uh, some land get some gold get some bitcoin get some guns i mean that's what i would say that's how you, that's how you stand up to this Charlie Imogen has sent a question in about your opinion on why people are being discouraged from eating meat and what's going on with farmland. Well, Jay mentioned this, that Bill Gates has been buying up farmland in, in America for a long, long time, but he's also done a, a, also the solution to that is, well, we've got to have more natural seeds we got to we got to get away from these gmo seeds and that produce gmo crops and we've got to get to the real seeds and the real farms and everything and and guess who financed the building of the svalsbard seed vault in norway 1100 kilometers south of the north pole none other than the rockefeller foundation monsanto syngenta and oh, actually monsanto was in it. syngenta was in and the uh, bill and melinda gates foundation now this is a seed vault that is 400 feet up a mountain and then 300 feet inside the mountain. It's been hollowed out. It has millions of organic, original, actual, real seeds. They're all stored away there by Bill Gates and the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, that's a lie. It's just a large freezer. It's just a large freezer, Charlie. You're out there lying. It's spreading disinformation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a large freezer with all the real seeds while the peasants get to eat the fake gmo seeds that grow <laughs> everywhere else so so this is a again like it seems disjointed if you if you're not paying attention to the bigger picture it, it might seem like well bill gates just has he's diversifying his portfolio you know he's got a lot of money in tech stocks and you don't want to have it all there if there's a crash so you buy land that makes sense right and you go yeah that does make sense but when your entire existence is that of depopulation, which is Bill Gates, and your entire reason for being on this planet is to depopulate humanity, then I don't look at it like Bill Gates is diversifying his portfolio for financial reasons. I look at it as an agenda. And I think it's reasonable to do that because then you start to say, well, he's not just invested in farmland and he's not just in invested in uh, you know, in, in Monsanto, which he was the largest individual sh shareholder of 
the company that makes, you know, was the lead in the genetically modified uh, organism industry, but he's also runs a biomilk. He, he runs a, an incubator, a venture capital company that invests in a variety of other companies, one of them being biomilk, which is fake synthetic milk, which is really weird that he was investing in that right around the time that we were having baby formula crisis around the world. But I'm sure that's just a gigantic coincidence as well. He's invested in lab grown meat. He's invested in all of the things that you would be investing in if you were trying to move society away from eating actual food and eating synthetic foods, I mean, he is quite literally one step away from opening up a cricket processing facility, which I wouldn't put it past him. The day's not over yet. There's still time, you know, but this is an agenda. And, and once you sort of pull on this thread a little bit, you'll find that it is deep connections all over the place. So it's important for us to not, you know, look, it, it's easy to be dismissive of this stuff and say, it's just you conspiracy theorists having your ideas and everything. But, but really what it does is it's, it's dot connecting as David Icke as, as, as our mutual friend, David Icke says, you know, it's, he's dot connector. He's like, I'm not coming up with these ideas. I'm just connecting these dots everywhere. Bill Gates is just a series of dots everywhere connected to all sorts of things. So look, it's, it doesn't make you crazy for, for, for recognizing this. It just makes you observe it. That's all. David, these synthetic foods then, are they part of this program of DNA alteration? Yeah, that's, I agree. I think that's what it is. Ultimately, um, everything is turning into something that's fake, artificial, man-made lab created. Um, and part of that process might even be because this is about patenting your genetic code at a so if you can alter something out of out of nature into some kind of like say you take a natural plant like i can't patent a plant that grows in my backyard that might have curative properties to it um so what pharma does and what this whole industry does is they take natural elements and they mix it all together and they patent whatever the result is a lot of artificial and synthetically created ingredients get mixed in. And now that's something they can profit off of. That's how they make it. Um, so they want to genetically modify us. They're saying it. So part of that is you have to do that by, I call it uh, adjusting the fish, the, the, the water in the fish tank, right? Imagine we're all living in a fish tank. You don't have to go to every individual fish to genetically alter them. You just have to change the pH balance of the water of the entire fish tank and then it it achieves the result globally for you. So um, that's one aspect. The other thing is this is just about control. At the end of the day, these people are control freaks. And the reason they're trying to create a synthetic artificial world is because these people have cut themselves off. Clearly, they've cut themselves off from their organic nature and they see salvation in the scientific lab and under the microscope and in the supercomputers and in this transhumanist agenda, because that's what this is. And so essentially these people have sort of like a cult-like belief in this. It's their religion. And they look at this as the salvation. And they're just saying, well, the whole world has to go along with this because it's the only way. It's the same thing they did with the jab. If you want to survive the boogeyman, you have to take this one seasoned approach to addressing it. We don't want to deal with natural holistic uh, solutions that could easily deal with this. We want to pigeonhole you into a pharmaceutical product that had to get emergency use authorization um under only because we don't have anything else we could use 
And yet we're finding out that this is altering humans on uh, that mRNA genetic level. That's the concern. And even if people were to say, no, it doesn't, it doesn't, not this one, they're openly talking about how the future of this mRNA technology will achieve that. So whether you think they're doing it with this or whether you think they're down the pipeline, it doesn't really matter. Uh, the food, it starts with the food, the air, the water, and the environment. And then the last thing I'll say on this is part of this too is a pipe dream for these people. Okay. I don't, there are people out there that would say everything they're saying with transhumanism and the genetically modified organisms and all that is just a pipe dream. They'll never achieve what they're bragging they're going to achieve with it. But if that's true, then a lot of this could also be part of the psychological warfare campaign to keep everybody, including us, uh, up against the ropes. So we're always, oh my God, well, they're going to genetically modify us. They're going to implant us with chips, which is what they want to do. But there's something that happens on the psychological level that they're trying to program. If they can't program you genetically, they're trying to program your consciousness, your mind, uh, and make you think like a robot and make you think like a genetically modified organism instead of that natural organic human that you are. So this is, uh, truth against the world. This is nature versus synthetic nature. And it's, it's ultimately a battle between good and evil and we have to win it. We've got a question from Paul, but I'm going to fuse something into it for Jay. She, she's asking, uh, who's the head of the world elite that we know. Do you think Jay that Davos is just an instrument of the world elite and are the competing world elites are the Chinese elites versus, uh, you know, Western elites? What, what's the theories there? So I would say Davos is really just kind of a front piece, a sort of a PR arm of uh, Bieberg. Uh, it comes out of the <clears throat> Bieberg group, which David Rockefeller in his memoirs has a whole chapter discussing the creation of that together with Prince Bernhard of the ne Netherlands, who was uh, a member of the SS, as well as a lot of other um, uh, prominent families, black nobility in Europe and so forth. And so that's kind of a front thing for an inner steering committee. And that's all modeled on these older uh, Royal Society, Royal Institute of International Affairs steering committee groups that were set up uh, after the model of Cecil Rhodes's uh, Milner uh, uh, roundtable groups. So the roundtable groups basically are the model for what we see in the U.S. as the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission. And so Davos is really just one of those uh, <clears throat> steering committees. It's more public. It's kind of like a public face of all this. So that's why they invite a lot of Hollywood people over the years. Kevin Spacey was the king of Davos one year, Leonardo DiCaprio goes. So that's, a, it's like a PR kind of public push. Um, but it does have, you know, a lot of influence, or at least it did, maybe it's starting to wane. Uh, but that's who's at the top of all this is that covert uh, superstructure that was created out of uh, World War One and World War Two by the corporate and banking elite uh, known as the quote, deep state. It's the same thing. Uh, it's the same structure that was that Royal Society structure. And one thing I would add about the food is that the uh, the controlling the food is an old ancient plan. Plato talked about in the Republic that he said that to have the ideal city state, which is run by, by the way, a secret society, he says you need to have control of food supply and make sure that the proletariat, the proles only eat you know grains and kibble. Whereas the elite, they get a better, more nutrient uh, uh, nutrient uh, based diet mainly me and Bertrand Russell in his uh, 1931, he's one of these Fabian socialist Royal society uh, uh, technocrats who wanted to basically depopulate the earth in his uh, 1931 or two book scientific outlook. He has a whole chapter where he says that the key to controlling the future will revolve around controlling the diet and make sure that everybody eats kibble. They won't be eating meat anymore. He wrote that in the 1930s. 
and the elite will be eating real foods, real meat. And so that's that's the key here is that this is a, a an old plan that's being repurposed and retooled for a technocratic order. All right, Charlie, how do you perceive the structure of the world elite at the top? Yeah, I mean, I think Jay nailed it. Yeah, it's there's there's the public facing version, right? That that that's allowed to interact with the media and cameras and and whatnot. And then there are those that benefit from remaining sort of in the shadows and ask these people to do their bidding for them. It's very effective. It's very effective for a variety of reasons. It gives the people that require cover, cover, allows them to stay back in the shadows. It allows them to use these cutouts to do their bidding for them. And when things go awry, and they all often do, almost always do, then these are disposable people. So you can get rid of them and a new batch of of um, egomaniacs are willing to step in and fill their place. So it's a very effective, um, if you're looking at, at this as like a business manufacturing component, it's very effective. You just have pieces that get worn out easily and you just constantly shuffle them through where the the more important pieces stay sort of you know hidden from behind and and look if they need to poke out and and make their themselves known at some point they will but this is the 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 pyramidal structure of things is there for a reason you know it works very it's very effective you get a you can get a, a vast majority of people down in the base layer and the lower levels that are doing all the work paying all the dues, doing all that to be part of this group. And they may never figure out what the group is all about because they never are able to get up to the top part of the, of the, of the pyramid. So the, just not just the organizations itself, but the, the actual structuring of the organizations work very well to, um, to allow those that want to remain hidden, hidden. And those that are, are seeking something, whether that's wealth, fame power i don't know you know the things that 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 guys like epstein could provide you know th- th- they'll get whatever they want they the rulers just need to know what it is that makes you what floats your boat and then you know if it's fame and, and money well we got that but you're gonna have to work with us you're gonna have to work for us and so these we will see this we see it now we'll see it in the future people that come and go they get they get used up they go in looking one way yasenda arden they come out looking the other way yasenda arden you know i mean you see the toll that this takes on the human body this is if ever there was an advertisement to not become part of this global click it would be just taking a look at the before and after pictures of that woman and see what evil does to your soul it literally kills you from the inside out. So play with that if you'd like, but I'm staying as far away from that. Uh... Two questions for David then. So your thoughts on the top of the structure of the pyramid and also Dali's asked, how do they keep themselves safe from the very conspiracy they're carrying out against the rest of us? Well, both of those questions are a, a podcast in themselves, but really good. Um, when I'm not sure if I read this out in the last uh show the quote from Dr. John Coleman and many of others have have confirmed this and Jay was mentioning it. There are these orders and organizations that have been around for a long time behind the throne. All right. This goes all the way back into history. It's just the structure of how these things work, where they put a public face towards the masses. They put public celebrities, 
um, politicians, you know, kings, queens, monarchs, whatever. That's always the public face. But we've known for a long time that there's always groups behind them. Because obviously, strategically, if uh, you want to take power over land, resources, and wealth, which is ultimately what this is about, then, and especially if you want to do it illegitimately and illegally, then you don't want to be the person as the actual front of the entire thing. The mafia works like this. Organized crime works like this. The human trafficking networks in the world work like this, where you very rarely know who you're actually working for. Some guy pulls up in a van, passes you some cash, you get a job and you just work that job and then you come back and you get paid. That's how the criminal network operates. It also operates off things like blackmail and uh, you know they're offering the carrots on the stick. But there's also a deeper level to that because I think it's ultimately compartmentalized where when you're looking at some of these groups like like Coleman was mentioning the Order of St. John of Jerusalem, the Knights of Malta, which is one of the big groups that I'm looking at in Cult of the Medics. It's linked into the sort of I call it the Dark Vatican, um, where that is age old. If you want to get into conspiracy and espionage and intrigue and infiltration and asymmetric warfare, look no further than the Holy Church of Rome, quote unquote. Um, and nothing against anybody's personal faith. I'm talking about how these groups infiltrated the houses of light uh, where nobody would really suspect them. That's why it's the wolf in sheep's clothing. Shout out to the Fabian uh, you know, symbol there. Um, and so they operate in a place just like they do with the medical industry behind the places we trust. But really, there's a steering committee that's guiding the whole thing towards something. So you got your Order of St. John. You got Club of Rome, German Marshall Fund, Sassini Foundation, the Fabians, and the Venetian Black Nobility. So essentially, you got your aristocrats, your royal bloodlines. And these people, whether it's true or not, have a belief that they are sort of like the pure ones. They're the vicars. They're the stand-ins. Whether they're wearing the crown or the gown of a priest, they're really operating in the same fashion that they're using that power to wield over you. So if you're looking at the top, there's wild, there's it's speculative because a lot of us don't even really know. I've even got quotes from people like Giuseppe Mancini, who was an Italian uh, aristocrat who took the mantle of the actual Illuminati groups, the Bavarian Illuminati groups uh, from people like Albert Pike and all these guys. And he said, there's something above us. There's something, uh, even us, the veterans of the secret societies, there's something that we can't even define or understand that's above us. And so I speculate and go, if this is so anti-human, if this is about altering humanity and nature from its natural organic state, are we at the tippy tippy top even dealing with something that we could define as human? And people can speculate and go, are we talking just some psychopaths that have no empathy? Are we talking interdimensional uh, demons, archons, and spiritual forces? Are we talking about physical uh, just people from other planets that are more advanced. Uh, I'll let you speculate, but I think there's a connective tissue to all of this stuff and uh, I'll leave it for people to, to look at it, but we know the structure is there. And then, um, you know, my job and our job here is to try to bring all, as best evidence forward as possible to say, okay, we're getting closer and closer to the top. Uh, Davos ranks very, very low as do a lot of the groups we know. I think it goes well beyond them. And just for now, we'll leave it at that. As for this question about how do they keep themselves safe from various conspiracies they're carrying out against the rest of us, this would have been on the planning block from day one, obviously. Um, so uh, they are experts at this. This is an age old. They have access to knowledge that most of us don't have access to. And knowledge is power. And part of that knowledge is how to build civilization, how to build empire, how to build 
um, elite criminal organizations and networks. And if you have an agenda to say, like I've heard people say, well, if they're tainting all the food and water and air, aren't they eating the same food, water? Aren't they in inhaling the same air as us? Aren't they doing all of this? Um, these guys are, they, they would have had all that stuff obviously figured out and uh, they are trying to set it up so that the, they're changing the environment to actually suit the environment they prefer. Um, and they obviously have those safeguards in place or otherwise they wouldn't be doing it. It would be suicide. So they're not going to be eating the same food as us. They're not going to be, uh, they might even be genetically altering themselves so that they can actually um, exist in the world that they're trying to create. Um, but uh, you also have to remember that these people are insane. They're, 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 they're insane in, in that level where what they're doing, um, the reason it seems crazy to us is because it is crazy. It's because they are literally on a path of self-destruction. Uh, whether they believe it or not, they think they're just gaining power, but I think they've kind of bit off more than they can chew. And they may in fact suffer the karmic, um, reprisal of their actions, uh, in more ways than just whether or not they're, uh, going to be affected in the way we are from all the things they're doing. So well, how do they keep themselves safe? These are expert players in this game and, uh, they are, you know, 3d chess masters. They know what they're doing and they've been at this for a long time and they have access to centuries of knowledge of human psychology, the process of nature and how to build a successful, uh, conspiracy to take over the world. So that's the best answer I got right now. Fantastic. Thanks, David. What would you like to add to that, Jay? Yeah, I think that the key here is to understand that we're up against, um, like he said, millennia and centuries of passed down knowledge about <clears throat> how we how, how to rule man. I think that a lot of these uh, structures, a lot of these secret societies that go back, the real uh, art that they're involved in is controlling and ruling society. And so there's secrets, as he said, that regard uh, not just the secrets of nature that might pertain to technology, but the secrets of governing man, man. And so when we go back, for example, to Plato, I make a big deal to lecture through and um, go through a lot of the writings of Plato because the what we really see in both the Republic and in his uh, later writings like the Laws and the Symposium is that these are secret society structures that are created for a philosophical and um, moral so so-called elite <clears throat> intellectual elite to trick and dupe everybody. He even eventually calls it the Council of Nine, which is this kind of inner inner core oligarchy that uses the noble lie to rule over everybody else in the society in that pyramidal structure. If you look at the, the Republic, it's a pyramid. And so that's the basic pattern and outline that has always existed for global imperiums or, or people trying to set up a global imperium throughout history, whether it's Egypt or Babylon or whoever. And so today's is different, not so much in the basic structure, but just that they've really figured out the techniques of technology uh, at a you know, uh, an amazing level such that they want to try to impose this uh, in covert ways and overt ways at the same time. And it really is, as Klaus writes in the Fourth Industrial Revolution, the last third of that book is about imposing a synthetic rewrite of all reality. And it sounds crazy to people that hear that. What do you mean a synthetic rewrite of all reality? I mean, the whole third last third of the book is about changing you, changing your DNA. It's about changing the external world uh, putting RFID, Internet of Things, nanotech everywhere, and then having that all linked into a satellite system, a sort of a, a Skynet type of system from Terminator, that all is interlinked to uh, big you know, supercomputers that basically run everything and run the whole world. 
And that's after this phase, as he talked about with uh, Prince Charles there, of this, quote, great reset that they want to have so bad. All that is is going back to what the previous Platonist revolutionaries known as the Illuminists or the Jacobins said when they uh, instituted year one or year zero, depending on which revolutionary group you're talking about. In the French Revolution, it was year one. So that's that was their great reset. They really believed that I can wipe away everything that came before, create an entirely new civilization. But this time it's about getting rid of most people and setting up a new technocratic system. That's the big difference here. But it's the same model that the revolutionaries in France, that the revolutionaries, uh, even Pol Pot, Maoism, it's all the same type of revolution where you wipe away the past. And it's no, it's not accidental that they called it year zero, year one. And this is the great reset that's in pushing the reset on, on the calendar there uh, to create a new society, a new civilization. And so that's why it's the the new it's the fourth industrial revolution. Right. It's, it's this meaning the new civilization that will not be like anything else that came before because it's post human. That's the key to understand. So in this technological society, Charlie, we've got a question from Tony um what's the situation with your phone and devices getting spied on how does that fit into all this i've got a really great firsthand story to tell you about this so um <laughs> i live in denver our football team is the broncos our rival is the kansas city chiefs my wife has a dream one night that she bought a new car which was true she'd she'd bought a car a couple weeks earlier but in this dream she bought a car and she bought a chief's car that was like all decked out really well done, but it had like embroidery in the seats. And it had, you know, when you open the door, there's this little feature that you'll find on some like high end cars where they'll, it'll, the, the light will, pr- will shoot out like a little logo onto the ground underneath you, you know? And like when she opened the car door, it put the chief's logo there. She couldn't make sense of it. Right. And it turned into this running joke in our house that I'm like, well, you know, are you picking up our daughter? I'm like, make sure you're in the chief's car today. You know, like it just turned into this kind of running joke. And she had to retell her. Uh, we had dinner with her mom and stepdad and we were explaining this to her or to, to the family. We were, so we had to tell the story again, all over again. And then the following day, my wife comes walking into my office. She's holding up her phone. She goes, take a look at this. And she goes, look at these ads that I'm getting. The ads she was getting on her, on Facebook, on her phone, were Kansas City Chiefs logo, a, an actual Kansas City Chiefs logo, that thing that light that goes on your car door that does put the, the logo on the ground. We just speculated that it existed. I mean, I've seen it for like Infinity or Lexus or some cars makers, but I've never seen it for your favorite team. So in my head, it, it didn't exist. The list, the the ads that she was presented with were identical to the things that were in the car. And I was like, oh, shit. I was like, Facebook is on the record saying that they have invested in brain mapping technology, that they are looking to try and understand how people think. They're trying to read your mind. And to me, it had always been like theoretical, like, oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I know they they know what we're looking for and they know what we're searching for and they can make a calculation based on that. It's much deeper than that. Your phone is listening to you. If you tell a crazy story, you may wind up with um, targeted ads that reflect that story. Or if you don't own a cat, but you just start talking about cat food to your cell phone for the next couple days, 
you will get cat food ads on your feed. So that's where we're going. So, so, so to answer your question about like how, you know, the spine of the, the cell phone technology, it's very real. It's, it's happening all the time. I mean, th this, this, this technology that we carry around in our pockets is a double-edged sword. I mean, we have all the information in the world at our fingertips. Not, not all of it is accurate, of course, but, but, the trade-off is that we lose our privacy. We lose, we lose a lot. And, and these companies have no problem monetizing that for their own benefit. So David, are we being spied on through our devices in an Orwellian fashion? Well, they're admitting it, Sean. Um, real recent story is out of Canada where we discovered that our government admitted, this was even in mainstream news, um, that the government admitted that they were spying on Canadian citizens without their knowledge or consent for the entire uh, pandemic operation. Uh, that just came out recently. And um, that was to track your movement, to track your behavior, to track. Uh, I think they're trying to monitor this situation as it unfolds by monitoring us. And um, I think that more and more of that's going to start to come out as all the Twitter files are dropping and more of this is coming forward, just how deep this goes with. And when we say government, I'm specifically looking at the what I call the cult of intelligence. Uh, that was the name that Victor Marchetti came out with with his book called The Cult of Intelligence, which was uh, one of the first censored books by Congress before it was released. And he exposed from the inside just how deep the rabbit hole goes with the CIA. And I did a whole coverage of this in Chapter 8 of Cult of the Medics. Uh, where we jump into the history of these intelligence organizations, which have always served the elite classes. Um, and so they're looking for surveillance so that they can, number one, keep make sure you know you're being tracked. They, they don't mind that you know. It starts off as, uh, oh, we're, we might think about doing it, even though they're actually doing it already. And then they come and go, yeah, yeah, we were doing it. We were surveilling you against your knowledge and consent, breaking all your constitutional protections and privacy laws. But but it was for the greater good, guys. We're trying to reset the world here. So uh, they're they're getting us used to it. I think this is part of the social conditioning on one sense is they're getting it, getting us used to the Orwellian surveillance state on steroids. Um, but another aspect of this that I want to bring in really quickly is when I started researching cults and serial killers and just the pattern of criminal psychology, if we're dealing at the top, okay, because there's a lot of little useful idiots down the chain that are just, they think they're helping, but at the top, these people are psychopaths, okay? And if you study uh, how some of these serial killers would track their prey, right? Part of the ritual, part of the expression of that, that inner darkness of these psychos was the joy of hunting their prey. They wanted to know everything about it. They wanted to get to know the victim intimately. Um, if you get into these Dahmers and, and, and Berkowitzes and all these guys. And so there was a mechanism of sort of like a twisted pleasure, uh, you know, that, that they got from surveilling their target, tracking their target, learning as much as they could about it. Because the more they learned about their target, they would say they felt like they were consuming them through that process. They felt like they were taking ownership over that person through that process because they had the advantage of being the predator in the dark and that person didn't know they were there. And so I'm just bringing that in as a possible way for another sick, twisted motive that at least at the top, I'm not saying everybody, but at the top, that they look at this as a game of cat and mouse. They look at it as a grand chessboard. And it's also, remember, these people are very ritualistic in their beliefs. If they're part of these ancient cult systems and they have this worldview that we've sort of been hinting at here, that I believe they do, um, 
they are using this as a part of the ritual of bringing in this state of control, making sure that the prey animals, which is us, are aware of this to a certain degree. <clears throat> and then ultimately, they're also bringing all that information back to train AI, to train this new system so that when the AI comes on, they've got so much data from real everyday human beings that they can program that into the entire matrix, uh, Tron matrix system. Thank you. We're almost out of time, guys. I might just, there's a few more questions outstanding. I could put perhaps go around a little bit, but if you could just keep your answers to a minute or less, I know it's going to be sure. almost impossible. Um, Jay, thoughts on music festivals and MK Ultra? Yeah, I, I mean, we've I, we've done a few podcasts speculating on this. I don't have any direct evidence of like a, you know, CIA document where they were studying music festivals. But I do know that the essentially the 60s counterculture movement was suffused with uh, people from military intelligence, people from the CIA, <clears throat> the Congress of Cultural Freedom. You can look up uh, Timothy Leary's quotes uh, himself on youtube where he says you can thank the cia for the whole 60s counterculture so i would venture to assume it's pretty it's a pretty safe bet that uh the rave scene which developed you know, in, in the 80s and 90s probably def had you know some tavistock uh, research and 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 uh influence going on there i certainly wouldn't say that everybody was involved in it but probably by the time we get to these big music festivals i mean a lot of them are promoting you know the notion of globalization trans global all this kind of stuff i'm a i was a big fan of electronic music so you know i, I can speak from seeing a lot of that um but i don't know that everybody's necessarily like directly involved in you know intentionally being a globalist i think it was just kind of part of that ethos and i sean you would know all about that as well yeah thank you for that um charlie jen hopkins my wonderful co-host has asked so what is above us you mean on the pyramid of the hierarchy chain i don't know i mean I think that's what she's asking yeah machine elves a maybe aliens, <laughs> aliens? How, how far down the dmt rabbit hole do we want to go i don't know <laughs> is it all love and and peace is there some nefarious <laughs> players i don't i'll tell you what here's the thing i i I wouldn't pretend to have it all figured out. I have been down those paths with uh, psychedelics. I have, I have witnessed and felt like I was a part of something outside of myself. Um, my little brain can't process it all. I don't know. I don't know if I would believe it, even if I, if someone told me how it all worked, you know, my, my paranoia <laughs> of these things goes, runs a little deep too. So I don't know. I don't know what's above us, but there's everybody's got a boss, right? So one, one minute, David, to talk about Elon Musk's neural link. Um, sure. W real quick, what is above us? It's the stars. Start there, and uh, we'll <laughs> work our way back. Um, Elon Musk. We did this last time, I think. Um, really quick. He's an interesting character. I don't have a final opinion on it. I'm actually just witnessing this unfold, where he seemed to be years ago remember he he said he had a belief that there was a he had a lot of concerns about the coming in ai right the, the advent of ai and he thought that it was going to outcompete humanity and that really the only solution because of how dumbed down everybody is and how unaware we are of how far along they are and also how far along they are that the only way was to somehow meet in the middle and start to modify human beings so that we could compete with ai so we don't get wiped out that was what he was saying is like he came to a point where he thought it was a big threat, but then 
uh, we have to do something or otherwise like we're at a point where we can't return. That was his belief. So there's two ways of looking at that. Oh, he's just another member of this big grand conspiracy. Um, and he's just trying to push his brain chips and all that kind of stuff. Or it's just literally a disagreement that I would have with him or others would have with him that the only way to deal with this is to literally like become part of the Borg in a way. Um, other people would say that the brain chips are really only designed for medical pr purposes, which is always a great sales pitch uh, for obviously other applications. Um, but then other people would say that Elon was originally sort of controlled by some of these behind the scenes networks and was a part of a lot of these things, but he was sort of an unwilling or unwitting agent. And um, certain things had happened where he got better deals from other places that he has now been able to start actually fighting back in the way he always wanted to. This is just one theory. Um, and that that's why all of a sudden he's taken over Twitter. He's uh, bringing back free speech. He's actually speaking openly about the Davos thing and the World Economic Forum um, and some very, very interesting things coming from Elon. And now we're allowed to go back on Twitter and speak to millions of people about all this stuff. So um, I'll let everybody decide if they think he's a white hat, a black hat, a gray hat or a pink hat. I don't even know. But he's an interesting character. And either way, what something around Elon Musk and this whole Twitter thing is important. That's all I know. And we just have to watch it and use it as an opportunity. And hopefully the truth will come out about all of this and we'll figure out who's really behind it all and where everybody uh, sits on all these issues. Right, we have totally run out of time. Huge thank you to all of our guests. All of their links are in the description box below this video. What a fantastic first hour. Thanks to our powerhouse guests and you viewers of all your questions. We salute Charlie Robinson, David thank Whitehead, you. Jay Dyer. Thank you so much, guys. Can't wait to see you again. You take care. Thanks, thank Sean. Thanks, boys. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye. Right, so now we're going into the second hour. And we're going to bring in Stephen Knight and Jeff. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Stephen. Good to see you. How are you? It's good to be seen. Thanks for having me on. Uh, my pleasure entirely. Maybe you could just start by letting our viewers and listeners know exactly what it is you do. How would you describe your work? <laughs> oh, that's hard to do. The shortest answer is I'm a writer uh, who is focused on paranormal and haunted places and weird stories and uh, all kinds of strangeness pretty much for my 25-year career. Uh, I'm the writer and researcher for the Ghost Adventure Show on the Travel Channel. I've authored 16 books now. I'm a podcaster, and uh, my passion is exploring the unexplained. Awesome. So I, I was just um, having a look at your YouTube channel today, and um, in your profile, it says you you had your first encounter with what you believe to be a ghost in the in the Paris catacombs. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about that experience and what was it about that experience that convinced you it was a ghost? So by the time I went to the catacombs, it was 2003, and I'd been writing about ghosts for six years or so by then uh, for newspapers and magazines and the web. Um, I was very journalistic in my approach. That's how I started and everything. And I, I didn't quite take a position. It was always, well, I believe that you believe. I have no reason to doubt your story. But when I was in Paris, I was alone in the catacombs. You know, they're 30 meters below the city and it's very quiet. And uh, no one else went down there with me that day. And I'm completely alone in this long tunnel, this straightaway where I'm surrounded by human skeletons on both sides. And I saw what I perceived to be a ghost. I mean, this solid figure stepped out from one side and moved to the other and went back again. And I just froze. And sorry, and, you said you went down there by yourself. Yeah, no one would go with me. What are you going to do? <laughs> Not go down by myself, I believe. 
it would be my answer to that question. Be brave, yeah. a lot braver than I am. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's. I mean, I'd already been doing this kind of stuff for years, and um, I mean, if some place is said to be haunted, I'm going in. I want to see it. I mean, I, I wanted to every place I've ever gone, and I sort of gave up. But in that moment, when you see something where you don't have another word for it, it, it sort of changes you. And I, at that point, I'd interviewed hundreds of people about their ghost experience. Now it's thousands. Um, and I, I said, wow, this must be what they meant. I think it's almost like a lightning strike. I mean, we know lightning strikes the earth many hundreds of times a day, just not usually right near where we're standing. Yeah. Well, I, I'm fascinated with ghost stories. I always have been. I, I really appreciate just story in general for the, the human experience. I think it's it's massively important to, you know, culture, society, stories in general. And I often seek out ghost walks when I visit historic cities and towns, because quite often that's the best way you get to see the city or some of the hidden nooks and crannies. But I don't believe in ghosts at all. So what could you point me to? Someone like me who's a skeptic, who's, who's very... Um, um cynical the idea of ghosts shall i say that could possibly change my mind like I'm, I'm thinking sort of like documented evidence because it's difficult to know especially in today's uh you know the advance of technology what's what's fabricated what's not fabricated what's a hoax what isn't uh, do you have a smoking gun in that regard yes i do um and you already used it you there's a word for it <laughs> and and really uh the fact that there's a word for it means it's a thing and the reality is that this is a philosophical discussion. If I had one in a jar, I assure you, Stephen, I would hold it up and show you and I would open the jar and say, there it is. But I can't. And I can't tell you where they'll be or when they'll be there. But I know that there's a word for it in every language. There's a cultural understanding of it. There's um, They exist in history books and in religious texts. And when someone has that experience, uh, we get to the very primal part of, of who we are. And the, and the big question really is, you know, do we go on after death? Is there some sort of uh, essence of us that lives on? And that is the smoking gun. I, I'm, I'm not out to prove anything to people who don't want to believe that's okay. But I think the story itself is inherently important and powerful because it connects us to our past. And the reason a building is haunted isn't up to me or any ghost show or anything like that. It's because a community talks about it. A community continues to say, you know, I, I this this building is special because it's haunted because something happened. And then you have to go back in time and figure out what that event was. Yeah. I mean, I suppose people would, would on the flip side of that would all would say that humans, we're, we're in a unique position where we know eventually, unfortunately, we're all going to die. I think we're, we're unique uh, in that knowledge. And it's almost comforting to imagine an afterlife or that we go on afterwards because we can kind of pretend the end isn't going to happen. It's just, you know, we're going to get a sequel in some way. Is it not possible that the, you know, the belief in ghosts is just a product of our psychology, knowing that death is looming? Yeah, I mean, of course. And, and that's all part of it. I, I truly don't have the answers. I've never died yet. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't know. But I, I know that, um, you know, as you said, going on the ghost walks and things like that is a way to connect with history. And yeah. I mean, I wrote an entire book trying to define a ghost. And I'll save you the trouble and the time and the money. I, I think the most simple definition is that a ghost is history demanding to be the, remembered. It is the past coming to the present. So, for example, uh, you know, we're haunted when crimes go unsolved. We're haunted when there's a, an unsolved murder, even if it was a century ago, even if it was two centuries ago. Someone got away with murder in that building over there. And that bothers us, that 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 haunts us. And and we don't want it to happen again. We know it could. So on the one hand, yes, it is absolutely a philosophical discussion 
of, you know, who are we? What are we? I mean, world religions exist trying to answer that question, right? Billions of members trying to, to say, okay, yeah, there's something more. And how do I live my life uh, knowing that? So it's, it's really, it, it's, a, it's a deep dive down a rabbit hole when you start talking about ghosts. The fact that they exist, I don't think can be argued what they are. That's the thing we can argue about forever and ever. What are they then, I suppose? Is, it would be my next question. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, you have well, to get someone way smarter than me. Uh, and I don't know who knows. And someone who says they know is just uh, speaking from a belief system, right? It, it can't be proven. It's just something that they believe to be true. All right. Well, at this point, I'm just going to ask people in the comments to let me know whether they believe in ghosts or not. Maybe they can share some of their their own experiences. I personally haven't had a, an experience like that, but I think there's also something to be said for believing in ghosts uh, as a as a default. So you went into the catacombs already accepting of the you know the, the existence of the supernatural. Someone like me may have had a different perception of the experience. I, I tend to find that. Often, you know, very trivial things like being unable to locate car keys or a, a, a piece of cutlery or crockery falling off the side, that suddenly becomes much more important to people who believe in the supernatural. Whereas to me, I, I'm, I'm just, I've misplaced my keys or there's some vibrations that have helped something fall off. So, I mean, is there something to be said about this mindset of being open to it? And then obviously you believe the supernatural is all around us because you're just open to it to begin with? Yeah, I think we're all uh, open to varying degrees and some are entirely closed off. I was raised Roman Catholic in the interest of full disclosure. And uh, though it didn't stick, uh, certainly that's part of my DNA at this point. But I yeah. recall going to my my grandfather's funeral when I was quite young, and it was an open casket at the wake. And I remember looking at him and thinking, wow, that doesn't look like him. I mean, obviously it's him, it, uh, but it doesn't look like him. Him, The, the him that I knew was gone. Yeah. Uh, and and of course it is, that life force, that essence. And and my question is, well, shouldn't it look like he was sleeping? And when I was in university, I, I got to the point where I was almost an atheist. And I think the the one little thing that kept me from going all the way over the edge to atheism were ghosts, were the fact that people have these strange experiences. And then later on, as an adult, I would have I would have a couple of them. I mean, I've been doing this 25 years and I can count on one hand how many times I've seen something that I can't explain another way. And when you see that, uh, it's proven to you even, and I, you weren't there, you know, I understand you don't have to believe me. You can think I was jet lagged or whatever. Um, but until it happens to you, then it sort of changes you. Yeah. So, I mean, I suppose the, the general idea within, you know, folklore with ghosts is that these are the spirits of people who are, who are no longer with us. I mean, that, that, that accounts for billions of people. Then if we want to put it in perspective of how many people have, have lived and died. And, um, it, it feels like, uh, you know, these encounters typically, managed to take place just out of shot of the thousands hundreds of thousands of cctvs we have or you know recording equipment everyone's got a mobile phone in the pocket now it just seems for someone like me i'm really hungry for that you know that you know that 4k filmed in landscape uh perfect shot of the the specter or spook or gorilla or whatever you want to term it so why is it you feel that we we don't have that uh in this discussion we do. Uh, they, they come up all the time. They even make the news. BBC puts stuff out, national news, international news. Um, but then people don't believe it, right? Yeah. Uh, they'll say, hey, here's a security camera that caught this door opening and this specter sort of walks through and disappears. Or uh, ring cameras on people's homes, you know, catching this wispy figure that goes by. And and if you, if you disbelieve, then you're going to come up with every possible excuse mm -hmm. other than ghosts. And by the way, I'm not saying it's conclusive by a long shot. 
But I know sometimes, you know, the equipment we use and things like that, it picks up some weird stuff, you know, and you go, huh, it's not supposed to do that unless something's there. And so when that stuff, when that, that sort of visual evidence is presented either on a documentary TV show or on the news or whatever, there are people that go, yes, that's proof. And others that go, ah, you're faking it. It's uh, it's just, you know, made in post or it's, it's just a coincidence or a bug that got too close to the lens. So we do have that stuff. We have recordings, we have video, um, but it's not enough for some people. And that's okay. I understand. Sure. So, I mean, many people who, uh, you know, claim to have experience with the ghost. I mean, what's interesting and I found fascinating how brave you are to go to somewhere. So, I mean, so I don't believe in ghosts, but I still would be too frightened to go into the, that, you know, the catacombs underneath Paris on my own for sure. Uh, but you, you obviously are quite open to the idea, or it seems that way, that ghosts are harmless and they don't wish us any harm. But there's a lot of people who believe in ghosts who claim to have had sort of violent experiences, you know, uh, you know, possession, uh, you know, people, uh, sort of poltergeist things like that do you do you put much stock in them uh, kind of uh, stories that people say well sure i mean so when someone has an experience that they can't explain they have to use whatever words that are in their lexicon you know so if if you uh if you see this circular craft in the sky with lights going around it and you're all alone in a field and it buzzes in and buzzes out you say wow that was a ufo that was a flying saucer uh, you have no other description of it, right? I mean, that's that's what you perceived it to be. If you see grandma, you know, uh, two weeks after she passed away, standing in your kitchen, um, what other word would you care to use, right? I mean, and but people have these sort of experiences. They hear knocks. Um, th there's one theory that poltergeist or noisy ghost has nothing to do with dead people, but everything to do with the living and that it's some sort of telekinetic uh, ability that we may not even re realize we have, that you know, something in our brain literally can make a knock on the wall and we don't understand how or why that's happening, but it's happening. And it has nothing to do with dead people. It's just some function of the human, you know, experience that we don't fully grasp. So it's sort of all out there. Millions and millions, billions of people really have these experiences and that's how they're interpreted uh, for that individual is like a ghost or a poltergeist or an alien or a, a Bigfoot or any number of other, you know, strange creatures that, don't go away no matter how smart we get or how logical we get or, or otherwise. It's always interesting as well when people believe in the supernatural to see kind of where their limits are in terms of what they do accept. So obviously you mentioned Bigfoot there. Would, would, do you believe in Bigfoot? Do you believe that's a genuine thing, Sasquatch? I, I, I struggle with that too, right? I mean, so yeah. I, I've talked to people and the narrative on Bigfoot is always so similar. You know, someone says, I was a hunter. I've hunted in these woods for 20 years. I know every creature that belongs there from the little ones to the big ones. And this eight foot tall hairy creature walked by and I don't know what it was. Uh, and, and, and they're not overly moved or changed by the experience, but it's just a head scratcher. The skeptic in me says, wouldn't we find a dead one? Wouldn't someone shoot <laughs> one or capture yeah. one in some way? Of course, I have those same questions. And then you get, you know, then it gets weirder and weirder where someone says, well, yeah, well, if all these all these people can't be lying. So is it an alien? Does it go to another planet? Does it is it interdimensional? I have no idea. But the fact that when I say Bigfoot, there's a picture in your mind right now. You see it. You see it right in front of you. Right. Same way if I said Santa Claus. Right. You you see him. You see what he looks like. You know, the red suit and everything. Um, we have an understanding of, of what these things are, even if we can't capture them.
And that's to me, that's just as intriguing is why they don't go away, no matter how smart or logical we get. Yeah, I've just had angry Canadian in the comment section there uh, quoting Ghostbusters, which which brings me nicely on to popular culture and movies and TV. And how do you feel about the way the supernaturals represented there? Because we are we're all, we're fascinated with it. If there's a if there is a good supernatural horror movie out at the cinemas, uh, everyone's talking about it. It becomes the big thing to see. People like to gather and watch it together. We like scaring each other and, and, and enjoying in this kind of this otherworldly, otherworldly mythology. And how, how do you feel how pop culture maps onto the things you've experienced or investigated yourself? Do you think sometimes it's a fair representation? Sometimes it's a bit silly. Oh yeah, it's well, it's everything, right? So uh, if you look at some of the various uh, horror movies that have come out, my favorite is when it starts with based on a true story, right? That's that's yeah. my favorite. I know this is going to be great. Uh, so for example, like the conjuring movie, uh, which, uh, was, was quite popular. It's been made into a whole, you know, a chain of movies. Now I live about 30 minutes from that house. Uh, I I've been to it a number of times. I know every single person that was portrayed in that movie. I grew up with Ed and Lorraine Warren. Uh, they lived in the town next to me. I knew them since I was a teenager. Uh, I know the people that own the house uh, before them. I know the first investigators. I know the parent family that were depicted in the movie, all of that. And the movie uh, was such a, a complete fabrication. Just, just a, I mean, they just basically said like, okay, there's this house in Burville, Rhode Island that was haunted. And that's all the writers went with, you know, everything right. that you, was depicted uh, with maybe like one exception was completely invented by Hollywood, but based on a true story in that, yes, it was the parent family in this house in Rhode Island. And that's about the end of it. That being said, I still love the movie. It was fun. It was like a fun scare. And I had to sort of shut off the part of my brain that said, this is not a documentary. There's very little truth here, but it's a fun horror movie uh, because we do like to be scared. Same reason we like to ride roller coasters. You know, it's we like to have that controlled fear, be in a safe place, but still get the, you know, get the hair on the back of our neck standing up. Absolutely. I'm just keeping on that um topic of scary movies i don't know if you're aware of a british horror movie that came out a couple of years back uh during lockdown in fact called host i don't know if you've seen or heard of that no, i didn't see that one i i can highly recommend it it's got a wonderful concept it was set during lockdown so it was uh it was basically a 60 minute zoom call of a group of friends who are all oh. in their various houses Yep. Yeah. And they they, uh, they did an online seance um, and, you know, things rapidly started going downhill. And I was I, it's been a long time since a movie has actually made me feel a little bit of dread. So if you haven't seen that, definitely, definitely put it on your list. But I mean, maybe maybe that's something to talk about, because someone in the chat was asking me, why? Why would I be scared of going down into the catacombs on my own if I don't believe in ghosts? And I know yeah. personally, I don't believe in ghosts. and I'm, I'm fairly certain they don't exist. But I am also aware of the human brain and how irrational it is. And I, I mean, if I was on a plane, uh, I mean, I'm a, a diehard atheist as well. If I was on a plane and it was going down, I'd, I'd pray to every God I'd ever heard of because that fear does fear does magical things to you. But is there something about that human condition there that, you know, every, everyone has this innate sense of, of something else that's not natural? Well, so I, I think when you get to the primal part of the human experience, you know, Stephen, I can't prove to you that love exists either. But I hope you've experienced it in some way, either from mom or, or you know, never, like never see this. Now, now we're now we're unpacking it. Now, <laughs> now we're, we're getting, getting to the roots. <laughs> this is it. Had you been loved as a child, you might have believed in all kinds of things. Yeah, um, for sure. I can't prove to you that humor exists or physical pain. Like if I were to stick a needle into your arm, uh, most people would say, I bet that hurts. But you might have a really high threshold for pain or very dead nerve endings. Right. I mean, 
everything is so relative, but, but pain, you know, we understand pain to be real, love to be real, humor to be real, even though we can't put it in a jar and measure it. And so to me, this is a, a human experience and it gets down to, you know, what does it even mean to be human? I, I mean, I assure you, uh, if you want to take it as just the story perspective, it still has value. There are sure. people in your life uh, that I assume have passed on. You, you, you seem old enough or you've got people that, uh, you know, have passed on and yeah. things they may have said might stick a, still echo in your head. Uh, all these years later, you know, what for good or worse, you know, something disparaging that a, a relative may have said or or a neighbor when you were a child that just still echoes in there and, and shakes your confidence and so on. Even though that person's dead, they shouldn't bother you anymore, but they're literally sort of haunting you. Uh, we get haunted by our past because we're still sort of reconciling with what happened back then, right? We're a product of where we're raised, who raised us, uh, all of that. And and the events that took place where we're raised left a mark, maybe even a stain, especially if it was something sort of dreadful. And we still have to sort of reconcile with that. Um, and, and so to me, like that's part of the inherent value of what a haunting is. But of course, for some people, it's quite literal. It's you go there and you see something that you can't explain with any other word. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I suppose as well, in terms of, uh, you know, the dead making contact with us in, in that way, there are also people who will claim to be psychic mediums as well. It's a, it's a, it's a bit of a personal pet hate of mine because I, I can see that plenty of them are frauds. Uh, I think once you, you recognize the techniques, some of them use, it's easy to spot. Uh, but I just wanted to get your opinion on that in general. Is, is it possible? Do you think or likely that there are human beings that can talk to people who have passed away and, and pass on information to their uh, bereaved family? You know, I struggle with that one too. I've uh, done plenty of events in the paranormal where you're at a table and you're, you're signing books or whatever. And next to me is, is a medium that's offering, uh, you know, 15 minute readings. And I eavesdrop because that's what I do. And, you know, when you hear the, the same reading, like the, the fifth or sixth time in the last two hours, you know, you're like, ah. <laughs> right. You know, you start, you start to say, do you want me to do the next one? I, if you go to lunch, I'll, I'll do the next one. <laughs> yeah, I, tuck I, me I in. I got the script down. So I get what you mean. Some of them are fraudulent. However, we all have intuition. We all have gut feelings. If you meet a person for the very first time and all they say is hello and your skin crawls and you just feel really uncomfortable, what, what would you, I mean, you, if you, I accept if you want to call that psychic, right? That you have an intuition, a, a gut feeling about this person that makes you uncomfortable. The opposite could be true too, where all they say is hello and you go, oh, hey, maybe it's a romantic connection. Maybe it's a, we should be friends or I would like to know more about you. Um, or you're in a, you're in a dark alley in a city and you start to get scared, even though there's nobody around, you still, your, your, your fear instinct kicks in, fight or flight gets ready, all of those things. And when you are, are scared, your senses get sharper. It's its normal function. Not only that, when you go to bed at night and you turn off the lights to your bedroom, uh, it takes your eyes three minutes to adjust. Your pupils dilate, you can take in more light, and you can see further than you normally can in the dark. When it's very quiet, your hearing gets sharper. And the reason for that is because, you know, we're animals. We want to hear, you know, the tiger creeping up behind us to, to keep us safe. Um, we have the innate ability to extend our existing senses in very logical, normal ways. So why not uh, a little bit further into seeing something that's just beyond? Uh, I think we have the ability to find water, uh, as many animals do. We've just it's gotten quite dull over the millennia because now we just go to the faucet or the spigot. So, uh, 
if you think about these animal instincts that we've sort of taken for granted in our own species at this point, why not? Uh, why would we not have that ability to reach a little further? Sure. So, I mean, if, if there is, uh, you know, like there are rather spirits of, of the dead roaming around, is, does that stand to reason that there is an afterlife as well then? I think there is. And and I, I can't prove it to you. It's just my gut feeling that there is. Even if if what that is, is that we are remembered and that the lessons we are taught by our, our parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts and neighbors and friends sort of stick with us and help form who we are that we then pass on to the people around us. Um, that there is that sort of connection from the past, you know, going on and on and on all the way back. So that being said, um, there absolutely is an afterlife in the fact that like, think of every dead person you've ever known, right? I mean, you, you have memories of them, you have life experiences with them. They're still with you uh, in, in a very tangible way, if not, you know, floating next to you that you can take their photo. <laughs> For sure. I mean, I suppose what, what I struggle with is, I mean, consciousness, I suppose, in general is um, fa fairly mysterious. We don't know a whole lot about it. We know some things, not a whole lot, but, you know, uh, neuroscience is a fairly young um, science in general. But it, there, there's a good reason to suggest that everything we are, our personality, our memories, our speech, our hopes, our dreams are all contained within this this gray matter in your in your noggin, for want of a better word. And the more you chip away and damage that, the, the more those things dissipate, go away, get harmed or removed. So it just feels like upon death, that entire brain's going to be destroyed. And it seems to me that's the part I struggle with. I can't get from that completely destroyed brain to me turning up in, in some Paris catacombs or, you know, being able to communicate uh, and move and have motor function and uh, communicate uh, with loved ones. So uh, it's that leap from complete destruction of everything I know to be myself to somehow surviving that experience. Do you, do you give any give much give much thought to the, the existence of consciousness in that that perspective? Give much thought to it. Uh, I became a hospice volunteer to get closer to it. Um, my brother-in-law died from cancer and it was a two year plus battle. This was a few years back. And, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, no, thank you. I mean, uh, he and I got quite close during that whole ordeal. He was an atheist and yeah. he said, I'm going through something really weird. And I know you're into some weird stuff. And I said, yeah, that's fair. So we talked about living and dying and I was with him in his final days. And we had this very profound conversation about these out of body experiences he was going through where he would be very conscious that he was looking down at himself. Um, and admittedly, he was on a lot of morphine at that point for pain. He was, you know, breathing with oxygen and he was, he was, his organs were failing. He was going to pass soon. Uh, but then he was saying he was seeing things. He saw, uh, his cat from childhood. Uh, just, and he said, I didn't even like that cat, but there it was in my, my bedroom. <laughs> what are you doing? And here? then he said he saw his grandmother and he was close with his grandmother. And so, uh, speaking with other hospice volunteers, uh, you know, the rule is if, if family's there, you get out of the way, you just, you, that's a family moment. Um, but if there's nobody there, then you hold their hand so they don't have to go through this alone. And, um, <laughs> And I mean, I can't tell you how many volunteers have talked about in those final moments, uh, lucidity, where, where you, you sit up and you see something and you reach out and you, you speak a name and then phew, you're gone. And, you know, I, I yes, I also understand the flood of uh, dopamine and stuff that happens in your final moments because your brain is like, let's not go through pain. Let's just make you as high as a kite. Um, so mm -hmm. this is a pleasant experience. I get that, too. I understand all of it. And yet my goodness, there is something so profound that happens at death 
uh, from this living person there with, with a, you know, with, with life experience and so on to them dissipating when that machine shuts down. And it's just my gut feeling, Stephen, but I think there's something more. What, what are you hoping for then in, in, in those final moments? What would be the best case scenario for you? Best case scenario is that um, you're asleep in your bed, you're quite comfortable, and you wake up and my ghost is hovering over you saying, it's real, Stephen, it's real. <laughs> and you get out your camera and you start taking pictures and you put it online and people say, it's a hoax. I don't even believe you. That's crap. You made that up. <laughs> That's my dream. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, Jeff, I, I really, uh, I've had a glance at you constantly. You're a very talented storyteller and you're very passionate about what you do. Obviously, and I, like I said, I really, I really enjoy these things as a skeptic and a non-believer in general. I really love a good ghost story. It really, you know, it gets me excited. It's, it's something that we can all bond over as well. Uh, you know, myth, myth making is, is uh, a very human thing. Um, maybe you could just uh, point to the, um, where people can find your content so the people who are listening and watching. Sure. Yeah. Well, my website is my name, jeffbelanger.com. And, um, you know, I'm on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, and uh, I'm always looking for new stories, right? I, I have a passion for these things because they don't go away. Uh, and my podcast is called New England Legends, which is about all the strange stories uh, in and around New England from ghosts to monsters and cryptids and, uh, you know, everything else in between weird history. Um, I love how strange we are as a people. And I think to study the paranormal, you're asking the biggest questions humans have ever asked, which is, you know, what happens after we die? Are we alone in the universe? And do we know every creature that walks the earth with us? Yeah, some big questions. I mean, I suppose we've got a quick minute. Give it, you know, we've heard your story in Paris. Have you had any other similar experiences since that have made you confirm like that to you? That's definitely a supernatural presence. I was in a tuberculosis hospital in Louisville, Kentucky, and you, there were four of us. Right. <laughs> uh, it's, it's so uh, this, I mean, this place had been abandoned for years and years, and we were on the third floor, four of us standing together, chatting about nothing about one in the morning, and suddenly this man stepped out into the hallway and then ducked quick back into the room, and we all stopped talking at the same time. And I said, did you see that? And you said, you mean the man? So we, we raced to this room. Uh, it was maybe 15 feet away. There was nobody in there. And the only two places a living person could have gone would have been in the hallway where we would have seen you or jump out the third story window. And all four of us saw it at the same time. And that's another head scratching experience. When I was in Paris, I was alone. There was no one down there. that could say, I see it too. But at that moment, there were four of us and I'll never forget it. There you go. All right, Jeff, this has been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed speaking to you and I, and I wish you all the best in your supernatural endeavors. I'll definitely check out more of your content for sure. Thanks, Stephen. Have a wonderful day. You too. There you go. What a lovely, what a lovely chap and, uh, you know, very eloquent and, and talented uh, speaker as well. So I think you'll find that you can access his uh, YouTube links. I think they're in the chat now, if that's your cup of tea. I love a ghost story. I, I don't believe in any of it, but I love a good ghost story. There's nothing better than sitting around in a, in a creepy environment and, and telling tales and myths of the supernatural. Hello there. How are you? Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you great. Yeah, that's it. We've passed the first hurdle now. This Everything's going to go great <laughs> from here. Um, maybe you could tell our uh, um, audience a little bit about yourself. How would you describe what you do? 
Yeah, absolutely. And just I uh, just want to say thanks for having me on. And I had to run to a Starbucks because my internet was not working. I'm traveling right now. So just to let you know why things are a little off here. So um, my name is Kristen. I go by Colonel Kurtz. Uh, it's an Apocalypse Now reference if anybody's seen that movie a long time ago. <laughs> um, but I go by Colonel Kurtz online and I cover a lot of different stuff on my YouTube channel. But one of the main topics that I've been covering now for two years is is uh, the Marilyn Manson hoax, as I call it, Hello. because I do believe, and I've been discussing this for several years now, a couple of years, that Marilyn Manson has been the victim of an orchestrated, carefully coordinated, extensive hoax um, perpetrated or instigated by the actress Evan Rachel Wood and um, her ex-girlfriend, a woman named Ilma Gore. And they recruited a number of women, including Game of Thrones actress Esme Bianco, to, in, in my opinion, uh, to go after Marilyn Manson. And so for the past couple of years, as you may know, um, Marilyn Manson has been the target of multiple lawsuits, including a $10 million lawsuit by Esme Bianco and a criminal investigation and, um, you know, a media hit campaign, I would say. And so what I've been trying to do on my channel for the last couple of years is get the word out that basically what's going, what's been happening is is a, a another version of the Johnny Depp Amber Heard saga, except in this case much more extensive and involving uh, many more players. There is a lot to unpack there for sure. First of <laughs> yeah. all, it, it might just be worth mentioning. I think someone's noticed in the chat that you, obviously you are in a Starbucks, and in the image we can see what appears to be some Grim Reaper esque figure I in know. the window behind you. But I think that's just that's that a rain umbrella. <laughs> You can see there, there, there we go. Yeah, yeah there's some sort of weird having. Well, you were just okay. talking about death, so yeah, exactly. I'm a little bit on edge, I have to say. I could do without that right now, Kristen. But, um, <laughs> are you a Marilyn Manson fan then in general before? Did you, did you listen to his music? I was not. Um, I did, right. and I always liked his music, like the songs that I heard. I, I thought they were well produced and kind of catchy and stuff, right? And I always appreciated that he was a very successful provocateur, that he was able to get people, you know, talking about him and get a lot of media coverage and, and promotion and all of that. So I, I admire him as someone who's been successful at what he's done, and I've liked the songs that I've heard. But no, I, uh, I've never been a Marilyn Manson fan. In fact, when I first started covering this uh, topic a couple of years ago, I would have Marilyn Manson fans get on to me sometimes for not not knowing, you know, the the mythology surrounding him and not even knowing how, what to call him. Apparently, uh, his fans call him Manson. So I got in trouble with them for calling him Marilyn for a while. But uh, but no, I'm I don't consider myself a Manson fan. Sad reality of it is he's actually just a Brian, isn't he? Which is it's just not a name that that's particularly fitting. Okay, so maybe we can go over what what the allegations were because it seemed to me like I mean you said this is a coordinated thing, but it seemed to me we had multiple accusations from women giving testimonies, all of relatively similar accusations. And a lot of the time when that happens, it, they tend to be credible. But you you seem to seem uh, seem to imply some sort of coordinated conspiracy between these people. What what sort of things have you seen that indicate that? So I do certainly understand why people would have a hard time believing that multiple accusers would be lying. And um, I, you know, what I've said before is that under normal circumstances, if we were talking about just a normal guy down the street and he had multiple accusations against him, then to me that would be more credible. But what I've been trying to explain to people on my show over the past couple of years is that 
in this new media era where we have just so much media coverage and sensational media coverage and, and everything has just kind of exploded, you know, online, social media, that the old rules really do not apply. And that in cases where women are very much incentivized um, to get media coverage uh, or through lawsuits, you know, as maybe Anko was suing Manson for $10 million. That's not nothing. Right. And he's had several law, several women suing him. Um, but in cases like this, there's actually a lot to be gained through false accusations. And so, for example, uh, one of the accusers um, got a, a People magazine cover. You know, this was a this was a, an aspiring model or someone who had done modeling earlier in her life. But um, but, you know, really had not had not been successful as of late, right? Getting, getting older and everything. Well, she got, Ashley Morgan Smithline, she got um, a cover story of People Magazine. She got an interview with The View. Uh, Evan Rachel Wood, the primary accuser, yes, she was already famous, the Westworld actress, but she has become a really important uh, gender and sexual assault activist because of these allegations. So very much like what Amber Heard did, Evan Rachel Wood has changed her, basically has changed her image and has changed uh, the way she's perceived over the past uh, several years. And she has spoken before Congress. She spoke before the California Assembly. She has um, she has had articles, various articles and write-ups about her in you know New York Magazine and Rolling Stone and various outlets. And then some of the other accusers as, as well have gotten a lot of media attention. You know, photo shoots, write-ups in Rolling Stone, New York Magazine, People Magazine, and, and, and interviews and stuff. So they have gotten a lot out, out of this. And that's what I'm, I'm trying to, to get just, people um, to understand. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. I mean, just to explain the, the legal situation to somebody mm -hmm. like me, because it seems weird that they're, you know, he's being sued for a monetary amount for what are very serious accusations of very serious crimes. Why isn't this a police matter? Why isn't it not a police investigation? So the police have investigated the Los Angeles, um, the L.A. Sheriff's Department not only investigated him, but they seized all of his devices. There was a, a raid on his home or a search of his home um, over a year ago, and they seized all of his devices, you know, his computers, hard drives, phones. They've seen they've seen all of that stuff. Right. And as as you probably know, if you want to know who someone is the best way to do it these days is to know what they're doing online. And so, you know, at this point, the LA police know more about Manson than, than you know, his own wife does. Right. And so there was an investigation. He was fully investigated. What happened was um, just several months ago, the beginning of the summer, I believe at the end of the end of the summer, the Los Angeles Sheriff's department transferred or sent their case files to the Los Angeles district attorney. And basically the, the police closed their case. They announced, this was announced and they sent their files to the uh, LADA, the Los Angeles district attorney and the Los Angeles, Angeles district attorney, George Gascon, he has basically been sitting on it and is basically, I think, refusing to announce that the investigation into Manson has been closed because it is not politically popular or expedient to do so. Um, the LADA has been getting a ton of pressure from Evan Rachel Wood and some of the other accusers. In fact, Evan Rachel Wood frequently goes on her Instagram and begs her million followers to call 
the Los Angeles DA and complain and ask, why is it that charges have not been filed? And so what's basically happened is that he has been investigated and nothing came of it. And the police closed their investigation, sent the file to the LADA. And we're just waiting on the LADA to make a final pronouncement. But he has been investigated criminally. Nothing has come from that. Um, and so that's, that's where we are right now, is that no criminal charges have been brought and no evidence has been provided that Marilyn Manson did any of the things that he's accused of. I mean, none. And uh, no credible evidence, I should say. And so where we are now is this is just a battle that is now being waged in the media and also through these civil lawsuits. So he was sued by four different women. Two of the lawsuits have been dismissed um, for various reasons. Um, and then we had two of the lawsuits that were still ongoing. Well, the big news today is that one of those lawsuits, the lawsuit that was brought by Esme Bianco, the Game of Thrones actress, she was suing him for $10 million. One of that, that particular lawsuit now is going to be dismissed because Esme Bianco has settled with Marilyn Manson for an undisclosed amount of money. So that's the big news today is that Esme Bianco settled for an undisclosed amount. Now, as some people know who are following this case, I do have sources, um, various credible sources, and I, I tend to get information before, you know, before the public does. And what I'm hearing from my sources close to Manson is that um, Esme Bianco has settled. I don't know the amount, and they're not disclosing the amount, obviously, but I do hear from some of my sources that she settled for a sum that is considerably smaller, considerably than the 10 million that she was suing for. And so basically what we're looking at here is that Manson has, um, Manson has basically paid her a kind of a nuisance settlement to, to go away, right? Um, but, uh, and she's walking away. So she did not get anything from him in terms of any concessions or a statement of guilt or anything like that because he's not guilty, um, but she has gotten some amount of money. Now, I also hear that it's likely that that payment is going to not come from Manson himself, but is going to come from uh, an insurance company. So he did have some, apparently some insurance coverage, um, maybe through a home homeowner's insurance policy or something like that, that will cover things like this up to a certain point. And so basically what I think has, has happened with this is that Manson had two options when it comes to this Esme Bianco lawsuit. He could continue to fight it and he could take her to court, but that was gonna take another year from what I hear. And I've, I've also talked to some lawyers, not his lawyers, but, but lawyers who've been watching this case. And apparently he was looking at at least another year to fight this in court and a lot more money, right? Because he's paying lawyers for all of this. And so, it was basically a choice between doing that or just going ahead and settling for a considerably, you know, smaller amount of money and basically kind of a nuisance fee and shutting this down so that he can now consolidate his efforts on the case that really matters, which is the, um, the defamation and reckless conduct case that he's brought against so the lawsuit that he has brought against Evan Rachel Wood and Ilma Gore, who are the prime instigators in this case. And I say they're the prime instigators because it was Evan Rachel Wood and her ex-girlfriend, uh, girlfriend at the time, Ilma Gore, who actually recruited all of these women. So one of the big points that I've made on my show is that these women did not come together organically. They didn't come out 
organically and accuse him of things. This was not a natural process, but it was the result of a carefully coordinated, very extensive recruitment campaign um, to get these women to, 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 to join together and to go after this guy. And you ask me, you know, why do I think that these allegations are not credible? Well, talked a lot about, about this about this on my show, but there are many, many shady things, um, very suspicious things that the uh, accusers have done. For example, um, Evan Rachel Wood and Ilma Gore, they wrote a fake FBI letter. In other words, they constructed a document that purported to be from an FBI agent investigating Marilyn Manson. And they, they typed this up, a fake FBI letter. And they even took the name of a real FBI agent and they put it on this letter. Now, this, this FBI agent is not anyone who's, who's looking into the Manson case or anything like that, right? And this has all been verified, by the way. You can look in the court documents and you can see um, the way in which Manson's team verified that this letter was, uh, was constructed by Evan Ray Wood and Ilma Gore and that it was fake and they and Manson's team even contacted the FBI to verify that. May I that just ask what, what, that. what was their defense? How did they explain fabricating this letter? What was the motive behind that? Okay, well, um, Evan Rachel Wood, and of course, this is still ongoing, right? This this um, this lawsuit and this controversy, but Evan Rachel Wood claims that she just received this letter um, that she herself did not, she denies that she, she wrote it up or that it's, or, or that she falsified a letter. She just said that she received it and she had uh, no way of knowing that it was inaccurate, which is a really, it's a really weird explanation, a really weird story. Oh, I just got this letter from this random FBI agent and it said that Marilyn Manson was being investigated. And so I just decided to run with it. It doesn't make any sense. And one of the things that has come out in the last year or so is that the twin sister of Ilma Gore, the one, you know, the one who, who faked this letter with Evan Rachel Wood, the twin sister of Ilma Gore has actually come out and, and said that she was present when they were, they were working on this letter. And she actually submitted evidence um, of her own that, that, that this that this was faked and and so a lot of it's still being hashed out but basically the what this letter this faked FBI letter said was that Marilyn Manson was under investigation by the FBI and that Evan Rachel Wood was um, was a key witness in this investigation now the reason one of the reasons why they typed up this fake letter, was not only to try to recruit other women to go up against Manson as if to say, look, you know, even the FBI is investigating this guy. So he's a bad guy and you want to join us and let's take him down. Right. But they also used this letter. Evan Rachel Wood used this letter in a child custody dispute that she was involved in, has been involved in with the father of her child, the actor, Jamie Bell. Basically what happened was Evan Rachel Wood wanted to take her child out of California, away from Jamie Bell, and wanted to take the child, their child, to Tennessee. And Jamie Bell did not like this, did not want this. And so Evan Rachel Wood actually cited this fake FBI letter and entered it into evidence in this child custody dispute as if to say, look, this is why I have to go, why I have to take our child to Tennessee, even though you don't like it and don't approve of it, because I'm being targeted by Marilyn Manson and I am a part of this really important FBI investigation into, into Manson. And so basically she made up this whole story as an excuse for why she absconded to Tennessee um, with her child without the father of the child's approval. 
And so this is someone, when we talk about Evan Rachel Woods, this is someone who has been involved in serious legal, um, or I should say illegal deceptions that not only involve Marilyn Manson, but also extend to this custody dispute with the father of her child. And one more thing I'll tell you is that um, if you look at the court records from this custody dispute, which are publicly available, and I've talked about them some on my, on my show, you can see where Jamie Bell has even gone on record saying that he does not believe Evan Rachel Wood's story about Manson and he finds it non-credible. And so you've even, if you look at these court documents, you've even got, you know, the father of Evan Rachel Wood's child saying that he doesn't buy all of this and he thinks it's fishy and he thinks that she's deceived him. Now you would think that he would be concerned if he thought that Marilyn Manson were targeting his child, right? Because Evan Rachel Wood has claimed that Marilyn Manson threatened to harm her son with Jamie Bell, right? Um, and so he had, but Jamie Bell has expressed no concern about this. In fact, what we see in the court documents is that he's concerned that Evan Rachel Wood has been lying to him. And one more thing that came out in these court family court documents is that Jamie Bell uh, claims that he was having a conversation with his son and that his son told him that, that he, the son, couldn't do anything fun or couldn't even really go out of the house or go on trips because they, they can't do anything like that until Brian or Marilyn Manson is locked up. So basically the point is, is that Jamie Bell is concerned that Evan Rachel Wood has been uh, unnecessarily terrifying their son with these stories that this boogeyman Marilyn Manson or Brian is going to come after them. So there's a lot going on, but basically the gist of it is that Evan Rachel Wood has been lying about a lot of things and not just relying about Marilyn Manson, but also she's been lying about family court custody issues. What have we heard from people like, say, I mean, I've not followed this past the headlines, really, but I mean, people like uh, Rose McGowan, who's become a very prominent activist in the Me Too era, very vocal about her experiences, and she's a past partner of Brian Warner slash Marilyn Manson slash Manson. Uh, has she said anything on this this subject at all? Well, funny you should uh, you should mention that. So when these allegations against Marilyn Manson first came out in February of 2021, uh, and and by the way, all of the I, I said that it was coordinated. All of the accusers announced their allegations on the same day on Instagram. So they all. All of the accusers posted their allegations on the same day on Instagram, right? When this happened, um, Rose McGowan uh, went, went public, went online, and she said that although Marilyn Manson never abused her when they were together, and yes, they dated for several years, they were even engaged, they lived together, they went on tour, right? And she said that even though Manson had never abused her, that she stood with Evan Rachel Wood. And so that was, and the other accusers. And so that was what got big news, right? Is, oh, Rose McGowan, you know, Me Too, uh, Me Too uh, activist, Harvey Weinstein accuser, all of that. She supports the Manson accusers. Now, what's interesting is that a month ago, Evan Rachel, I'm sorry, a month ago, Rose McGowan went on a podcast um, with the uh, anti-sex trafficking activist, Eliza Blue. Now she's gotten herself in a little bit of trouble recently, but I don't want to talk about that. But Rose McGowan went on this podcast and she said that uh, she had been bullied nastily, very nastily, she said, by Evan Rachel Wood supporters to speak out against Manson and that she had never had 
abusive experiences with him, that he did not abuse her. She reaffirmed that in this interview with Eliza Blue. And she also said that one of the things that we have to come to terms with regarding Me Too is that some people are going to lie. So basically, a month ago, Rose McGowan went on a podcast and said and reaffirmed, that no, Manson did not abuse her. That was not her experience at all. Also, she was bullied severely by Evan Rachel Wood's supporters to speak out against him. And also, she said that it seems that people do lie about stuff like this. And so, you know, kind of reading between the lines, what I felt she was saying is that she has realized now, she's realized now that she was lied to by Evan Rachel Wood and these accusers, and she was bullied into speaking out against Manson. Um, now, I want to say one other thing about Rose McGowan, since you asked. She wrote a book several years ago, uh, it, her memoirs, and it, the book was about not only about her time in Hollywood and her experiences with Weinstein, but also her experiences with other men who have abused her. She even talked about um, her ex-fiance, Robert Rodriguez, the famous director who directed Planet Terror and Spy Kids and some other things, right? Anyway, what's interesting is she wrote this whole book about all of the bad experiences that she's had with men and with abuse. And yet, do you want to know the one person in the book who comes off looking really great? In fact, she talks about how he was one of the sweetest people that she had ever met, that he, um, that he, was, uh, uh, he was very misunderstood, that he was a gentle soul, that he was kind, that their life together was, their, their life together was very placid and tranquil and peaceful and all of that, right? Marilyn Manson. She was talking about Marilyn Manson. So in this book where she's trashing all of these other people, deservedly so, like Weinstein and CAA and all that, she has a chapter devoted to Manson in which she says literally nothing bad about him, except that after they broke up, after she broke up with him, he went on Howard Stern and he said some things about her that weren't very chivalrous or that she didn't like, right? Well, who hasn't gone on Howard Stern and gotten into a little bit of trouble saying things that they, they shouldn't, right? But, the, but basically the point is Rose McGowan said in her book that he was a sweetheart. And he, in fact, she even said that her nickname for Manson was doctor because she said that if she even looked like she might have a headache or that she might be having a bad time, he, he was so attentive. He'd say, what's wrong? Can I get you a Tylenol? Can I get you an ibuprofen or whatever? Right. And so, you know, if we go by what Rose has said, Marilyn Manson is a nice, very sweet guy, not abusive, a gentle soul. And by the way, Dita Von Teese, his ex-wife, also said that he did not abuse her and she did not have those experiences and that she too was bullied. She did a podcast uh, interview about a month and a half ago where she said basically the same stuff Rose said. Okay, so mixed reviews, shall we say, for partners of Marilyn Manson. But I mean, as we know, you know, rape is a common thing. Sexual abuse is a common thing, especially in relationship. It goes on, you know, far too much. And one of the, the huge tragedies about it as well is, is not being able to prove it has happened. It's a very difficult thing to seek and, uh, you know, gain convictions sure. for. And it, I mean, is there, not, is there not a part of you that worries a little bit that you might be doing, uh, you know, a bit of PR for someone who is an abuser, is, is a rapist, is a dangerous individual? No, there really isn't, to be honest with you, um, because originally when these charges first surfaced or when these allegations surfaced, I assumed that he was guilty 
that Manson was guilty because I was very much of the mindset, like you said, that this happens all the time, right? And that, you know, I, I couldn't imagine that multiple women would be lying about something like this. I, I had a different mindset back then. It was partly because um, I hadn't really started looking into these things a lot. But what happened was very quickly, I, I started watching, you know, interviews that these women were doing because they went on, some of these women went on a kind of a media spree or a media tour after these allegations came out. And so for, after the allegations were posted on Instagram for, for several weeks, in fact, for months, some of these women were doing various interviews and stuff. Well, what happened was very, very quickly, I, I began to see really big problems and inconsistencies in the stories that some of these women were telling, particularly Esme Bianco, actually. The, the first thing that raised a red flag for me was when I watched Esme Bianco's interview on Good Morning America, and I read her interview in New York Magazine, and there were a number of things that just didn't make sense to me and were contradictory and, and, and so forth. And so at that point, I thought, well, huh, this is this is kind of weird or this is, this is problematic. So then I started looking into it more and I would say with, within a, a, within a couple of weeks, I became convinced that, that there were serious problems with the allegations against him and that this was all very fishy. And so I started to look into it a lot. And to be honest with you, the more that I've looked into it, the more convinced I've become that this is a kind of an Amber Heard 2.0 situation, that basically what's going on is very similar to what happened with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, except that we have, because, because multiple women were recruited, then we have more women, right, involved in this. But no, I don't. I've, I, I was open-minded when this initially came out. In fact, I thought that Manson was probably guilty. I started looking into it very quickly, identified that there were multiple problems with these allegations and with the accusers. And since then, I've done a lot of research and, and, and no. I, I mean, can you ever be absolutely sure of anything? I'm not going to say I'm 100% sure, but I will say that I would feel comfortable betting my life on, on this. Okay. And I suppose regardless of... Um the outcome of these court cases. I mean, we can look at somebody like Michael Jackson, who was, who was found innocent in a, in a court of law. Uh, it's pretty much signals the end of anyone's career anyway, doesn't it? Is, is there, a, do you yes. think there's a way back for him after this, regardless of the outcome? Regardless of the outcome? Um, I mean, I'm not an expert in the, I don't know, know much about the music industry or the entertainment industry. And I, I don't know, I don't know how things like this work, but I can tell you that, I, I think it is almost impossible to um, to get like a, a venue to host Marilyn Manson when I don't think you could probably even get a, an event like that insured while he's considered to be a sexual predator and a violent abuser. And as I understand it, his career has been completely turned off and he has basically other than just royalties coming in from his past music, he has basically no way to make money now. And this is, this is, I hear, this is the reason why um, he went ahead and signed off on the settlement with Esme Bianco. You know, Esme Bianco, she did not have a case. And in fact, all of her evidence has already leaked out. Uh, a lot of people aren't aware of this, but several months ago, um, her attorney accidentally caused her evidence to be leaked out in, in a zip file. There was a live link to a zip file that leaked out in one of her attorney's court filings that had all of her evidence, all of her discovery on it, right? And so I have seen it. I and a few others have looked through all of this stuff 
And I can just tell you that not only is there nothing there, not only does she not have a case, but in fact, there was a lot of exculpatory evidence in her, in her evidence file. And I expect that in the, in the upcoming months, we will, we will see that stuff coming out and it will be clearer to people that she really didn't have a case, but she, she has settled I believe because she knows that she didn't have a case and she knows that the best that she can get out of Manson at this point is whatever small amount of money she's getting out of him as a kind of a nuisance fee. However, Manson, you might ask, well, why has Manson settled? Well, it's money. I can tell you that the guy has not worked for two years. You know, these allegations came out two years ago. He has not had any kind of a job or anything for two years. He's been ditched by everyone from, you know, his record label to his PR people to his, um, his, his manager. I mean, everyone. Yeah. It's and, not looking good. And I am so sorry to interject, but I think no, no, you you're fine. just run out of time and I, I want to make sure no, you get fine. enough, enough of an opportunity to let people know where they can find your, your YouTube channel and your output on, on this issue. Where can people find you? Yeah, absolutely. So it's right there in the picture. It's Colonel Kurtz. That's my name. And it's Colonel Kurtz. 99 if you look me up on you know twitter or instagram or youtube and i just want to say one last thing he is paying um i hear multiple attorneys and his P his crisis pr firm he's paying them like 500 an hour he's he's had he has multiple cases he's he's fighting this war on multiple fronts and i just think that it is really unreasonable of people to expect that since he's not bringing in any income and he's having to pay millions and millions of dollars for all this, that he would be able to keep it going indefinitely. He had to agree to this settlement with Esme Bianco because he's literally running out of money and he's got to consolidate his fight and, and not fight on so many fronts. So as I view it, this settlement is a kind of a consolidation so that he can focus on the case that matters most, which is his case against Evan Rachel Wood and Ilma Gore, the prime instigators of this. Well, you clearly have a lot more to say on this. So I think it'd be definitely a good idea to have you back as part of some sort of roundtable discussion on Marilyn Manson at some point that. to get more views across. But I've, I've really enjoyed speaking to you and I've learned a lot and it's something I'll definitely keep my eye on in the, in the coming months for sure. But thank you. Thank you very much for speaking to me. Uh, enjoy your coffee or latte or mocha <laughs> or whatever it is you're having there. Yes. I'll try to escape the uh, the Grim Reaper over here. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah that's, that's going to haunt me for the rest of the evening. But thank you very much. I, I really enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you so much. Have a good day. You too. Wow, a lot to unpack there. Hey, Sean. Definitely. Hey, Stephen. Thank you, everyone. It's been a fantastic evening. Huge thank you, especially to Stephen Knight. If you go down into the description box below this video, you'll see a link for Stephen Knight's channel and socials. Please support his work. And you'll also find all the links for all the guests we've had on tonight. It's not over. We've got three more guests on Patreon. We're going to have more Davos making a murderer. Lots more to come. So if you want to join us on Patreon, we will be there at in 10 minutes, actually. So thanks, brother. Until See you over there. Time. Cheers, guys. Bye-bye. Hey, Callum. Good evening. How are you? I'm not too bad. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks for joining us. Where, where are you based? I'm hearing some slight northern twang coming through here. Uh, well, I grew up in the northeast, but I'm now based in the south. But right this second, I'm in Edinburgh. Oh, nice. Okay, lovely city. I do like Edinburgh. What, what brings you to Edinburgh? Is it, is it business pleasure? Yeah, no, so we're currently working, uh, Rebel News UK, we're currently working on, a, it's called savepaddy.co.uk. So Paddy Hogg, he's, he used to be a councillor um, for, it was, I'll have to get it up, but it's, it's a, and he was a local councillor in Scotland. 
just outside of Glasgow. And he was part of a anti-lockdown protest in 2020 in Edinburgh. And he got arrested and he's been dragged through the courts now, even still. They're trying to get him for reckless, uh, culpable and reckless conduct. Is that just for him being outside during lockdown conditions, or was he was he involved in any sort of um, sort of altercation or anything like that? So they're saying that he arranged a protest when it wasn't right. it wasn't a one man arranged thing. It was multiple people or played a part in organising it, and he's the one the ones being dragged through the court. He's of nearly everyone in politics. He's one of the only people who actually has integrity and actually stands by his principles, which is why I think he's been dragged through the courts. All right, well, I'll look into that one for sure. I mean, it does seem a little bit, like if you look at all the fines that were issued during lockdown, I think I think we sort of like hindsight and 2020 vision, and a lot of it was excessive and a lot of a head scratch. You talk about people just enjoying a picnic in a park or going for runs yeah. and, and things like that. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of accounting done on that for sure. But tell us a little bit about you and, and Rebel News. I've got a sort of uh, checkered relationship with rebel news sometimes i've seen things which i value other times i've seen characters and people that i'm not too keen on but i suppose that's that's good really isn't it having a bit of a mix on a platform yeah it's one of these i've always so i I only really got into journalism the past couple of years i started out as an actor uh didn't want to get jabbed so that was it no more work for callum and i i just started how are you are you aware much of what stephen crowder does like with his change my mind Yes, absolutely. So I started doing those sorts of things. So I start, I started my own channel called Frankly Speaking Politics. Right. I, I just wanted people to start speaking frankly and openly about political issues again. Like, go back to the olden days where, okay, you believe one thing, I believe another. We can have a chat about it. And we can even have a pint afterwards. We're not just going to start shouting racist, sexist, homophobe, hmm. bigot, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd go on the streets and I'd put out something I believe in, but it, I'd put a British uh, spin on it and call it Convince Me Otherwise. So it sounds terribly English. And um, one of the fellas at Rebels saw my stuff and he went, I think you'd be a perfect fit. So how'd you fancy your job? So, from, I mean, to my mind, they're, they're a predominantly, I mean, they're a Canadian-based organisation, yeah. aren't they? So are they, are they branching out into the UK then? They are wanting, yeah, they're wanting to reach out further in the UK and Europe. Cool. So, I mean, you've just, uh, I mean, a couple of clips that you put on recently from Davos have gone gone pretty, you know, viral on there. I mean, you, you confronted Greta Thunberg. Maybe you can just explain what your, your issues are with, with her. Um, I, one of the, th- so, okay, so from some of the comments we've got, by and large, the comments have been absolutely fantastic regarding that interaction yeah, some people love the, uh, the sarcastic uh, questions I asked, but they also just love the fact that for the first time ever, someone in her position has been confronted and questioned on serious things because they always only get pre-charged questions. That they are only talk to the friendly media. But one of the things that some people were saying were like, oh, I, I, you know, she, she's just a child. She's just a child or she's just young. Which, no, she she sits with with politicians worldwide and influences global and national policy. So if you're going to do that, you should be able to answer tough questions. If you can't handle the heat, get out the kitchen. How old is she now? 
She's 20, I believe. 20. So she is an adult. I think, I mean, the issue we have is whether you agree with her or not. And I'm probably more sympathetic towards the, you know, the environmentalist arguments than perhaps you might be. I don't know. Maybe we can get into that. But I think what's really like head scratchingly bizarre is the fact that we've deferred a lot of our opinion to this one, you know, screeching child uh, who doesn't appear to have any respect for authority or adulthood. So, I mean, how, how has she become so emblematic of this argument? I mean, what what are the left playing at here where they're using this child as a, as a token for their, their uh, fight for uh, climate-based politics? It's an interesting, wasn't it? Because I've, I've always wondered why why her? Is it, is it the whole kind of most people are... Most people, like the last thing you want to see to be harmed is a puppy and a child. So is it? Is, <laughs> is, is, is she like? Is she safe? If if it's if it's a child, is that person safe? You can't you can't have a go at a child. You can't you know, you can't be nasty to her. No no hard questions. Yet the everyday people are you know as you've seen in the UK, um, there's been a recent slogan of eat or eat. Yeah yeah. And I, yeah. if, if you are one of those people where, where you're looking at, okay, do I heat my home today or do I have some dinner? You you, you should be able to ask whatever the hell you want. I, I agree. And there's almost an aspect of it. It's almost a dare in, in, the, in the sense of Greta Thunberg. They're almost daring you. To, they're almost saying like, go ahead, disagree with this. Uh, you know, this child with autism who's making these amazing point, points and points, by the way, that pertain to the just the existence of the planet. You know, it's no small thing. I, th I think the problem I have with sort of green activists and, and you know, proponents of climate change is they, they take it too far. I do feel they do have a point, but it's this idea of, uh, you know, no you know, zero carbon emissions. It's this idea of no more, you know, fracking or no more fossil fuels. There is These are really unpractical solutions to the problem that affects people in in very serious ways. Like you say, this whole, you know, eating or heating aspect at the minute is hitting a lot of places in the UK, especially working class families. And they're not going to give two hoots about, you know, Davos or what she has to say about this issue, are they? No, absolutely not. And, and, and I think... You know, so I, I used to be I used to be a firm believer in man-made climate change. I used to actually, you know, I was bought hook, line and sinker into the, what we get told in the news. And uh, I don't know how aware you are, James Dellingpole. I was once, you know, I was on the dog walk. I used to love a good podcast on the dog walk. And it was just the next one that came on. And it was him. He says, you know, so the next, my next guest is a climate change skeptic. And I, I remember I physically out loud went, oh, what a load of bollocks. And then I stopped myself and went, actually, no, Callum, you've been meaning to be more open-minded about things. Hear him out. So I went, right, I'll give him 15 minutes. I think the podcast is about an hour and a half, two hours long. I listened to the entire thing. Even when I'd like got back in the car to take the dog home, I carried on listening to it. And it was with a, it was with a man called Tony Heller. And he and he's got a great website called Real Climate Science. He does really interesting, easy to understand breakdowns, and he completely changed my opinion on on climate change. And I think some people are now starting to see that all these doom mongers, you know, your Al Gore's that he's made, I think he's made like three hundred million dollars from from doing right. climate change talks. And you go, hold on, every single prediction you make has never come to pass. So I, I think more and more of your average everyday person is starting to think, hold on, they said that there was going to be, you know, the sea levels are going to rise so high in 2000 that most of us would be underwater. They said we'd have run out of oil by now. 
and these things just never happened. And and I think people are now starting to look at these. And I think with that Greta video, I think they're now seeing, hold on, these people are absolutely full of it. But it's interesting oh, it's just the like, autism I mean, thing. Oh, sorry, go ahead. If you can make a point about autism, right. I need to hear this for sure. All right. Controversial opinion. I don't think she's autistic. <laughs> I am not in a position to diagnose that. But now, I'm, I'm only saying that because, and someone made a really interesting point the other day. So when, when I made sarcastic, sarcastic jokes, like asked sarcastic questions, she laughed. Right. Then later on, she made sarcastic remarks. Now, I don't know too much about things like autism. Sure. But from what I have, what I've been told and what I've kind of seen with my own eyes, those that are autistic don't understand those social cues. The idea of being sarcastic and understand sarcasm just doesn't really register with them. And it made me think. It's another one of those things where I think it's don't don't be nasty to her don't question her no don't be too hard on her because she's a child she's autistic and it made me think that they they come up with all these stories and i might be wrong i'm completely open to the idea i could be talking crap but it was just another one of those things i think my god yeah that that's a really valid point that i've never even contemplated before well, I, I know absolutely nothing about autism, so I, I have no idea. I, I do think there is a sort of trend to self-diagnosis with a lot of things in the in the common era. But I don't know if that's the case with her. But I mean, moving back to this idea of climate change, because I mean, I, I am aware of James Dellingpole and I, he writes in the Specky, the Spectator rather. And, um, you know, some, sometimes I, it makes a lot of sense. And I think when you engage on the culture wars, I, I tend to agree with him. But there is not a conspiracy theory on this planet that he does not believe. For sure. So, uh, but in terms of climate change, um, for it, for the like the, the entire scientific consensus, they're all on board in terms of man-made climate change. They're convinced. They believe they've got the data. Now, is it a case if in your mind? I mean, they they have to be wrong. I mean, are they all just clueless? Are they wrong about it, or or do they have an ulterior motive for suggesting climate change, which is man-made, is real? Uh, well, it's funny enough, when I was actually talking, I was talking with uh, Paddy Hogg about this today, actually, and he was. Uh, it's a really no. The, the exact study name has gone. I'll have to try and find it for you and send it to you. He was talking about the whole, you know, that ninety-seven percent of scientists agree, hmm. and it was from something like a study of three thousand three three thousand three hundred scientists that have done work on climate change that were asked, and it was something like only seventy-seven percent responded. Basically, like th that stat come from a really small pool of people. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that Tony Heller talks about is, is the, the money that's involved. Yeah, you know, I go back to all at the Al Gore point, the amount the amount of money these people get. So if if the problem is solved tomorrow, the money stops. If there's always a problem to solve, there's always taxpayer funding to do the research to solve. The problem. Yeah. I'm, I'm open to being completely wrong about things like climate change, but as I quite frankly like, uh, as I pointed out to Greta, you know, we, we used to say global warming, and then we moved to climate change, maybe because it was starting to lose its effect. 
but yeah. why, why why do these 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 politicians that that own houses on seafronts you hold on i thought you're the one telling me we're about to the sea levels are going to rise we're going to flood why is your house there there is certainly a, yeah a, a, a no small amount of hypocrisy from the, the biggest uh, cheerleaders of climate change for sure um tell me about the world economic forum because i'm having a big big problem understanding one the fascination with it and two getting to grips with what they're actually about because i'm spending a lot of time seeing some like quite frankly ridiculous claims and conspiracy theories and it's difficult to wade through them to figure out what's going on it you know it, it, it's all it ranges from sort of like the, the great reset the road they want to kill us all with vaccinations to they're going to force us to eat bugs to the just a political lobbying group i mean what what is your take on the on the world economic forum so Okay, so day one when we got there, we, we went through... So in Davos, have you ever been to Davos? Never, no. Interestingly, it's Europe's highest town. But, um, in terms of uh, cannabis consumption or just <laughs> altitude? I think it would have been a much nicer day <laughs> had it been that. Sure. <laughs> and it's the uh, highest above sea level. Right. Um, so yeah, so we, so we got there, we were there for a week. And so it still it all started in the evening of the Monday. So on the, on the Sunday, we thought we'd go through the area we're not allowed in the next day because we weren't invited press. So we, we went we went drove down the promenade, and my first my first thought was this is like a movie set. So you see all these. It's funny that they they bang on about sustainability, but you see all these shops that they're rented out for the week that have got fake fronts. Uh, the CNBC hut that's connected to a church was just a quickly put up timber frame. I mean, some of the craftsmanship actually looked pretty shoddy as well. There was just so many things where you go, this is this has gone up one week. And on the Friday, they'd already started taking things down. So back to the whole conspiracy theory front. I mean, I mean, if that is the case, what I mean, what does that imply in your mind? I mean, it, a lot of events do have sort of pop up aspects to them. Well, yeah, yeah, I, I, absolutely. But, but the point is, they talk about all this sustainability, and you think, oh, oh okay, what, what, what are you, you're wasting all these resources. You could do all this by Zoom, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this could have been an email. <laughs> this could have been an email that most people click delete. Yeah. Um. So they, what? One of the? Are you aware of who Larry Fink is, the CEO um, of BlackRock? I've heard the name, but no, I'm not overly familiar with him. So BlackRock, one of the most powerful companies in the world. The CEO, Larry Fink, is on the board of the World Economic Forum. Now, I don't know about you, but considering the... So w w one of the things they often... Nearly everything they talk about at these things becomes policy in nation states on a global level. So you go, I, I've, I've never voted for Larry Fink, yet he's a, on the board of the World Economic Forum... They come with all these ide wonderful ideas, supposedly, and then they're implemented in my country and other people's countries. Yeah, I never voted for him. And they talk about, you know, for, uh, did, did you see the Albert Baller video where Avi and Ezra followed him down the street and asked him questions? I did not, know. So the CEO of Pfizer, for anyone, for anyone who doesn't know who he is, they, they asked him very good questions very fair questions and he had no he, he wouldn't answer these things i asked larry fink why he's here wouldn't reply 
His security guard spoke for him, said, I'm going to a meeting. I said, you know, what's this meeting you're going to? Wouldn't tell me. I said, if, if you're, if the World Economic Forum, as you all say, is here for good reasons, for the bettering of the planet, what, why, if, why is it in your interest to keep things private? Why can't you tell me what you're going to do that's supposedly going to better it for everyone? And they rather open about their goals and, and missions. I mean, can't they just be they're, they're open about they're, Yeah, they are, they are open about their goals. But you think, if this is just to better everyone's lives, why does everything have to be behind closed doors? You know, the meetings with the likes of Tony Blair, he's not been elected for years, yet he seems to have more power now as an unelected bureaucrat than he did as the prime minister. It seems, I get the, the feeling when I was there, because less politicians are going there now, that the world is moving towards a one world government, but where it is more a corporation rather than elected officials. Right. And when you see the amount of huge company CEOs at these events instead of things like prime ministers, which still, I'm not a big fan of prime ministers being members of the World Economic Forum before they are prime minister, it seems to me like there is a transition of we're going away from elected officials to corporations and maybe just the one. So, I mean, what are the implications of that then in terms of how that would play out in terms of society, culture, legislation, law? Do you see anything coming down the road that gives you cause for concern? Oh, so much. Right. So much. Well, so I've, I'm now one of these people where if I hear something is a conspiracy theory, my first thought is it's probably true because there's probably been labelled that to kind of disenfranchise the argument. So you know they, they they want to go towards net zero, yet they'll all take private jets to go to these events, which again, as you said, could have been an email. <laughs> this could be done on Zoom on all your news channels, so everyone can see if you really want them to. But instead, they will take their private jets to go to Davos to talk about how we should eat bugs for the sake of the planet. I mean, Why, I. I would it not be the same as saying, like, if, if you know, Rebel Rebel News was to cause a to call a conference with employees and uh, funders, backers, associates, things like that? They wanted to discuss the direction of the company, what you hope to achieve in the next quarter. You'd wanted to speak to, and there was some sort of left wing, say, some journal uh, Guardian journalist following you into this meeting, demanding to know why it's being done behind closed doors and why why aren't you being open if you've got nothing to hide or you're looking to do genuine serious work you know i think it's a little bit similar to just basically private entities wanting to keep no, I, their goals in-house i completely agree with that I, I i'm firmly you know if if rebel did have one of those things and other members of the press you know from the other from the opposition side of the political spectrum weren't allowed in i and i'll say this happily now i callum smiles would have would have a problem with that because again i'm I'm an open book. I've got nothing to hide. I'd like to think we as a company wouldn't have anything to hide. But that's a thing. So like at these, that, that's a theoretical scenario, one which I agree with what you're saying and it wouldn't, I wouldn't think it would be right. But in what is actually happening is we have the World Economic Forum where we rebel who actually ask, ask tough questions, honest questions, I thought, aren't invited at the table. We have to try collar these people in the street.
Do you think, I suppose as well, like, I mean, it's frustrating, obviously, because I think if I would like to assume that if you were invited into the setting under an official capacity to cover it, you'd be less, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, uh, of an irritant to them, because regardless of your goals, you know, following people in the street and trying to sort of, it's almost like, it's not doorstepping, but it is approaching them, yeah. catching them off guard, that that may instantly put people on the defensive, regardless of their, their intentions. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I completely agree with that. And it does, in a way. It, granted, I had a really fun week. It was, it, uh, it was, it was great to actually finally confront some of and actually ask them questions I've always wanted to ask them. But I would love it if it was, you know, they call it free press. I'd love it if we could actually have an actual platform where we could ask these questions. Unfortunately, we're in this position where this is all we have. Did you get any sort of official pushback from security or personnel there? I mean, what was what was the sort of reception that you you had? Um, well, one of Tony Blair's entourage, uh, I don't know if it was on purpose, but, you know, it's another person who's fallen foul of Tony Blair, kicked over my coffee, which had my face printed on it. <laughs> what, like uh, intentionally? I don't think it was intentional. It was more just the fact that they all quickly huddle around Huddle around him. It's like it's like in a swarm of bees. They'll quickly get around the queen to, to, to protect her. Right. Only this isn't a bee; it's an absolute hornet. And <laughs> my coffee lay lifeless in the snow. Um, and things like you know, John. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the video. I asked John Kerry why we should take him seriously on climate change when he takes private jets to collect climate change awards. <laughs> Outright lied to my face, say face, and said he flies commercial, which verifiably not true and you know, his security again just, just dragged me off literally dra- dragged going by the arm dragged me off and it's like god just just answer these questions what have you got to hide from a question yeah i mean you mentioned a, a good point about conspiracy theory because i'm well aware of how people will throw out labels and terms to to close down the discussion for sure but i don't think these get any getting away from the fact that you look at the sort of q and on a lot of that is becoming mainstream there was a lot of crazy things surrounding the world economic forum vaccine specifically regardless of whether you you want to be vaccinated or not regardless of whether you think there are adverse effects or whether it's effective there are a lot of outright crazy things that have actually got a, a you know a, a sort of mainstream foothold now do you do you ever reach a point where you go, actually, that's just a little bit too much? I mean, that's it's legitimate to point the finger and say that is an out-and-out conspiracy theory. Uh, yeah, I, I, I used to. I, I used to. But now for me, because there's been enough times I've gone, nah, come on, that's too far. And then you go, oh, crap, they were right. <laughs> mm. um, well, I mean, what, what are some examples I, of something that, in your mind, that was a conspiracy theory, but now, now has established itself as truth? Okay, so things like a lot of the climate change arguments, uh, the JFK ones that recently have come out. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm now anti every single vaccination. I the more I've every into, vaccine, every vaccination. The more I've looked into things, the more I go that shouldn't be in the human body. You, you just have to look at some of the ingredients and you think, why why do I need formaldehyde in me or aluminium, which is highly linked to things like dementia, and when that's in the carrier fluid. What benefit does that have to me? Um, th- things like that, yeah. But did it not bother you as well? I mean, I know I keep going back to this scientific. No, no, carry on. Thing, but um, it 
it would be in the interest of the people creating studies on vaccine safety to say this is unsafe they'd probably get an award for doing it and i think i think what they tend to find especially with these new mrna vaccines it's actually very difficult to get it to do anything at all that's one of the biggest struggles they had when engineering it is getting it to have any sort of active effect so i mean i i'm just trying to get my head you know my head around the mindset of somebody who looks at the data specifically and goes that's it's still not for me i mean is it, is it a probability game for you do you think uh for me so okay let, let's go back to 2020 i wasn't i didn't i didn't buy the covid stuff mainly because i was watching the footage in china i was looking at some of the falls and i was like i've seen falls like that in drama school <laughs> falls you say as in like you know you clap oh, people clapping over right got you yeah i don't know why i did the camp thing there but <laughs> hey Very uh, well uh, so from, from day one i was like something's not right here and wh when they brought out these vaccinations wasn't keen one bit but i was of the belief when i thought no not touching these but the others work and then and then some people started to, to show me things and i'm like oh you got a point there and i'd look into look into things a little bit more to the point where i think Oh God, they are all that there is, there is, I don't, there is, they all have things that shouldn't be in the body, should not go in the human body. So I've, I, I was okay, absolutely not. No, no more. I will not ever have those things in me again. But back to your whole point on the surely someone will get an award. Well, sometimes when people have switched sides, sometimes it's then reported that they were very unhappy and they were found hanging in a hotel room or or people then get cancelled they quickly they they the machine finds a way to eat any dissenter that's yeah. what i see I, get, I, I mean, and that's certainly possible, but do you not feel that a lot of the people, they're, they're almost like rock stars now in the, the quote-unquote anti-vax movement. There are some big names now who are doing big business. And, you know, David Icke's back in a way. He's been biding his time to get back into the mainstream. The, the COVID vaccines have done that for him, for sure. You know, Dr. Molot is a big name at the minute. I think he charges something like five to ten grand per speaking session. He's turning up all over the place. It feels like you can actually... I mean, if you're talking about follow the money, it feels like you can do big business now if you just simply dissent from the scientific narrative. Yeah, you no, 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 you, you absolutely can, and I think some, I think some very smart people have seen the market for these things, and whether it's a case of they're just going, oh, I can finally sell my knowledge. I, I, I don't, I don't quite know, but one of the interesting things is, so uh, I remember talking to my uh, family about the MMR. I was like, I'd never give, if I had kids, I would never give the, the MMR. And they went, oh, but, you know, it's just stupid conspiracy theories about that. I was like, okay, so what, what are the conspiracy theories? And, oh, that it, that it causes autism. I was like, okay. R right, yeah, you're right. They, there's nothing that actually says it causes autism. One of the things Dr. Andrew Wakefield was used to talk about was that um, there's a link to brain inflammation caused by a an immune inflammatory response from a toxin coming in. So when that yeah. happens in the brain, neurological problems, it seems, can then happen. Well, I mean, but his, his paper on this got peer-reviewed and it, it fell apart under scrutiny and he, he was obviously struck off. Right. 
So, so he was, so yes, yeah, so he was struck off. So when he got struck off, they said, retract your claim saying the MMR causes autism. And he said, I can't retract that because I've not actually claimed that. I said, we need to investigate these further because I'm seeing X, Y, Z. So he never retracted it. But the interesting thing was, one of the things that the tabloids then talked about after was how he destroyed vaccine, he obliterated vaccine confidence. And because of that, parents weren't getting it. So infections shot through the roof. Now you can, right this second, go on the World Health Organization website. You can go on a map where you can go and click on a filter and click the illness, click the country, click the year. The year he was talking about these things, it was just under 5,000 cases in the UK. The year after, when he supposedly obliterated confidence, was 78 or 74. One of the two. So you go, so that argument right there is a lie. Some people, they've just shared it innocently thinking they're doing right. So they're not lying. They, they've just got it wrong with good intentions. Yeah, I mean, I think we can set, I mean, whether or not he was causal to any, um, you know, lack of uptake in the vaccine, I, I don't think, I mean, that may or may not be true, but I suppose it doesn't change the, some of the claims that he's made, he continues to make. I mean, I think he travelled to America and, and carries on on doing it. I've tried my best here to try and find the limits of where your conspiracy theories may or may end, and I'm, I'm still struggling. Um, it might be worth mentioning as well, uh, back to the World Economic Forum again. Yeah. What is the most concerning thing you, you saw there yourself? I mean, we've spoke about this idea of this facade, of, of this waste of like pop-up areas and the people coming on the private jets and, and things like that. Is it is it just a rich man's play club? Is, is this what we're talking, like a big boys club for it's, rich boys? I, I funny you say that I literally referred to it to a lot of people who have asked me as a big, it's a rich, it's a rich boys club. Right. So what, what, what do you buy a man who owns everything? You can't buy him anything. So if you've got all this money in the world, you have all the toys in the world, and I don't know, you might be a bit of a psychopath or just bored. You know, what, what, what do bored animals and kids and that do? They just destroy things. Because like, <laughs> so, but what, what if it is a case of, of, of that? But the thing that bothers me the most is, for me, an obvious move to a one world at the moment, I think we have the illusion of democratic processes and accountability. But I think we're moving dangerously close to a one-world government or corporation where they can do things and just be open about it to your face and there's nothing you can do. And if you go against it, either sod it or you're gone. I mean, how would they implement this? Because I mean, it seems like we're getting more sort of insular and nationalistic people voted to leave for Brexit. We, we sort of got out of the EU project for, for better or worse. I've, I've noticed the sky hasn't fallen yet, despite what we were told on that project. Uh, but I mean, how would they do this? Would they, do they just carry on lobbying the way they are influencing you know, government officials in high places? Or are we literally talking about one huge you know, uh, democratic block that oversees everything? Uh, for me, I think one of the one of the main things they do is is seeding and boiling the frog. Are you aware of that term? No, please go ahead. Do do explain. So obviously, if if you if you took if you took a frog in a pan of boiling water, it yes. would jump out. Right. Got you. When you plant the seeds, of, plant the seeds of thought in people, and just kind of slowly ramp up the heat. You've cooked the frog before it even knows it's being cooked. 
Like for exception. Yes. And and for example, so okay, let's take the COVID vaccines in children. We were told day one, right, this is just for the vulnerable. We'll get this is for the vulnerable. Once the vulnerable get it, uh, I remember the, the headline was 15 million jabs to freedom. That that was the headline in the news. And then it was, okay, well, we we've got the vulnerable done, but we need to do more. So we keep dropping the age. And then it got to, to an age bracket where they went, this is for adults, not for children. And then it was, okay, we're, we're going to explore the idea of maybe using the children, it might work. And then it was just vulnerable children. And then it was, okay, children can have this. But then it was, I've, I've heard of um, some kids in schools where it was, they teachers actually started to segregate kids. So these can go play break time and these could. So then they start to segregate them. And then it's a case of, oh, if you want, the best thing to do for your child is to give it this. I, I can't sorry to do this, but we just have run out of time. And this is definitely an issue where we, we need so much time to talk about because yeah. it's so big. So and I, I want to give you the opportunity as well before you go to let I apologise for taking too much time. <laughs> no, that's that's what you're here for. It's always great to have someone who can speak. It's just I'm, I have to apologise that we can't, we can't continue. But maybe if you could just let people know where they can find uh, some more of your work if they're interested. Uh, so the stuff where I first started, um, yeah, Ray J just put some stuff up there. Uh, my early, I do still do some of it, if, mainly on Instagram at Frankly Speaking Politics. Um, I, I, I tend to answer every question I get. Sometimes I spend far too much time on my phone with these. Tell me about it. Yeah, I know the pain. But I don't like to leave. I don't like to answer ten people's and leave one person hanging. So I end up doing them all. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, yeah, I think I think the links to them are in the uh, the chat. People want to click on them. But Callum, thank you very much for giving up your your evening in, uh, in lovely Edinburgh to talk to us. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I'll see, happy to be on again if you want. I'll see you later. Great. Good to speak to you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Right. You are free free to go for the evening now, Stephen. Thank you for your hosting. Absolutely. As always. It's- Pleasure, Sean. Some great guests, interesting chats. I appreciate it. Definitely. Cheers. Speak to you soon. Take care, my friend. Take care. Bye. Right. For making a murder of fans, let us bring in the return Jerry Buting. In a cesspit of corruption that is the Wisconsin system judicial system Jerry Buting was one of the white knights here we go fighting for the cause of two guys who were just sacrificed Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey Brendan Dassey Mentally challenged, told if you confess to this murder, you, will, you can go and watch WrestleMania. Absolutely appalling behavior by the psychopathic detectives. And their interrogation is now being used as an example of what not to do with the read technique. Both men, Stephen Avery and Brendan Nassi, are still inside. And Kathleen Kathleen Zellner is fighting the fight to try and get them released. And we've got some news that's just happened this week. 
regarding a filing by Kathleen Zellner. Additional documents were filed on January 24th for exhibits and a motion. So that was yesterday. The judge gave Kathleen Zellner until January 26th to file her reply to the state's response. This is very likely her reply. We're wondering whether an evidentiary hearing should be held. In Jerry's opinion, Avery has been held to a much higher burden to even get a hearing than any other defendant he has ever seen in 40 years of practice. What an absolute racket. Oh, here we go. There hey, we go. Jerry, how's it going, my friend? Good, how are you? Yeah, fantastic. Thanks for joining us to give us another update on making a murderer and answer some further questions. Sure. And off, off the top, then, we've got something's happened with Zelna yesterday. Yeah, it was a bit of a, a false alarm. I think tomorrow is the actual reply uh, to the state's. Uh, state's response. Yesterday, she filed a a document which essentially tried to clear up some citations to the record mistakes. Um, the this is a very old case, goes back to 2005, long before there was uh, electronic filing and scanning of of the documents into the record. And and I've seen this in other cases as well. Apparently, there were some mix-ups in which documents were you know, assigned to which document numbers. The state pointed that out in their response, and then she filed a, response, a re request to amend her uh, motion that corrected those citations, and that's what she did yesterday, is actually file that amendment. I mean, how long can this go on for? You know, <laughs> it can go on, unfortunately, a very long time, as people are learning. Um, I had a case where a guy named Ralph Armstrong that I was working on for the Innocence Project that was fighting for 19 years, um, actually 15 years with me uh, before we finally got him out. So, um, you know, that's one of the problems with American justice is just it, it takes forever. And it's one of the reasons perhaps the people who originally put them in prison, they have moved on and it's a new breed of, of people uh, re-examining these cases. Well, are you, are you talking about the prosecution or, uh, you know, there are new new prosecutors on the case. Everybody else has retired. Although if he gets the case reversed and it's brought back for a new trial, uh, one or more of those prosecutors will probably be appointed to represent the state as a special prosecutor. They'll come out of retirement, so to speak. Wow. Which one would that be? You know, I would not be surprised to see um, Norm Gahn come back into it. Um, I don't know about Tom Fallon. It's he certainly could. Um, Mark Williams is already doing being a special prosecutor in other counties and other cases, even though he's no longer actually appointed on this one because it's um, been taken over by the AGs. 
So what is the diff what is the different status of the cases of Stephen versus Brendan right now? Brendan's case is actually dormant. Um, his he doesn't have a motion pending in court. Uh, what he went all the way through his direct appeal through the state courts. He then filed the federal habeas corpus, went all the way through the federal courts. Um, in fact, all the way up to the United States Supreme Court that then chose not to hear his case. And so his direct appeal is completed. Um, he could still file what's called a collateral, um, we call a 97406 motion if there's newly discovered evidence or something of that nature that comes up. But right now, that has not yet been filed. Um, right now, he has, his case is, uh, has moved to the executive branch. Um, he, he requested the governor to grant clemency, uh, not necessarily a full pardon, but uh, the governor is, is authorized to shorten sentences and release people early. This particular governor has not exercised that right yet on any case. Um, and about a year ago, Dean Strang and I wrote a letter to him that became public where we were actually urging him to take this case as the very first one that he reviews and then to use that clemency power with many other cases because the way he has done pardons, he has issued pardons, but his rules for that are that you have to be out of prison and off supervision for a minimum of five years before you can apply. So that does nothing to reduce prison overcrowding and all the people that are languishing in prison now on, on you know, the kind of uber long sentences that were being handed out in the 90s, 80s, 90s, and 2010s. So, you know, I'm sure that his lawyer, Brendan's lawyers are still working to see if they can convince the governor to take another look at his case. He really should. There's people on social media every day that are asking the governor to do that. And, uh, but at, at this point, that's his, his option. There is no other case pending, no other motion pending in an actual court. What's the governor's name so we can get some more people on his case? Tony Evers, E-V-E-R-S. All right, well, well, people will find him on Twitter, no doubt. Yep. I mean, how, how, it's an absolute tragedy. How does a kid cajoled into a confession where there's no DNA evidence whatsoever end up stuck in the system for this long? It's barbaric. You know, it is barbaric. And it, and frankly, one reason he's stuck this long is because of, of you, you see it in season two of Making a Murder. They, they, they look at what's called the EDPA, which is this... Um, this law that pa Congress passed in the 1990s during the height of the war on drugs and the war on crime. And, and basically it, it, it's called the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, EDPA, A-E-D-P-A. And it really, it, it came about for two reasons. One, because of the Oklahoma City bombing um, and that the Sean McVay, and then the, uh, uh, World Trade Center first bombing in 1993 and in part and probably in large part because of very clever um, death penalty lawyers, you know, good advocates who were managing to drag out um, the ultimate execution dates for people by filing motion after motion after motion in federal court, asking the federal courts to reexamine these state convictions. Um, 
and so Congress, particularly some in the South that had death penalty states, uh, really pushed Congress to change and make it more difficult for federal courts to review and reverse a state court. And that was really the impetus, along with the Oklahoma City bombing and some other terrorist type things that that caused that law to be passed. Clinton signed it um, and it has made it much, much more difficult. Less than one percent of state court convictions get reversed now in federal court. And so even though Brendan came very, very close, he convinced um, four, essentially four federal judges that his confession was coerced and it should have been thrown out. He should get a new trial. Um, Ultimately, on an on bank review, he lost in a four to three very close decision. That's terrible. We've got an observation from one of the viewers here. We'll see if we can get you to comment on. Sean, not only was there no DNA evidence, Brendan had no representation during the interrogations. Is that legal, what they did? It is in Wisconsin. Uh, in fact, in, in some of the states have changed their laws now after Making a Murder came out. And um, they actually, uh, Illinois, um, I don't know if Tennessee has done it yet. There was talk about it. A number of other cities, Seattle and some places that have barred any interrogation of children 15 or under. Um, it varies from, from one jurisdiction to the next. But and then actually that wouldn't have helped Brendan because he was 16. But in those states, they're they're recognizing that this the read technique that was so well demonstrated in making a murder as being used against Brendan, it's really unfair for, for young people, people with vulnerable, even vulnerable adults um, going up against these very skilled detectives. And so in those states that have changed the law, um, the police cannot even take a waiver. That is that no matter what the, the child or the, um, the vulnerable person says about waiving his rights, they cannot do it. They have to have a lawyer present. And of course, as we also see in making a murder, the, the quality of lawyers varies mm. quite a bit. Um, if Brendan had had Lynn Kaczynski, for instance, his first lawyer, um, present during the interrogation, would he have cooperated and gone ahead and allowed them to do that? I don't know. He certainly did two interviews later, he allowed his, his client to be interviewed even without him being present. So, um, but it is permissible in America, and unless this is the rule, unless the, the suspect, him or herself, unambiguously demands a lawyer and exercises their right to remain silent. Are the laws or rules about parents being present? There are, uh, there are some, again, it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. There are some laws that, that require parents to be notified, um, but not necessarily that they be present. So in this case, for instance, in Brendan's case, the, uh, the cops claimed that they contacted uh, his mother and that um, they then went ahead and took him out of class and took him into, uh, you know, this private interrogation, but parents are not allowed to be present during the in the interrogation room with the officers in almost any jurisdiction that I'm aware of. Okay. Looking more at the Avery's situation then and KZ, 
The main point of contention will be whether an evidentiary hearing should be held. In your opinion, Avery is being held to a much higher burden to even get a hearing than any other defendant you have seen in 40 years of practice. Why is that then? You know, some people have said, is it is has making a murderer actually made it harder for Stephen to get justice mm. because, you know, they've circled the wagons and they're afraid with all of the, the global um, uh, fo- following of what happens now in the, the Wisconsin court that it's, uh, and that may be true. For instance, in, I think in this particular judge's case, uh, she knows that if she grants a hearing, there's going to be, you know, the media is going to descend upon little Sheboygan County because that's where the case has been farmed out to. Um, and that she would be under the spotlight. And, you know, that's not going to be an easy situation for any judge to face. Um, that might be part of the, the, uh, uh, reluctant, shall we say, to grant a hearing in Stephen's case. Um, but certainly from the state standpoint, they don't want to have to relitigate this with actual witnesses. They want, uh, in fact, I, I think in their response, they've really misled the court on a lot of what the, the facts are. Um, and they don't want to have those facts, the real true facts aired in public, in front of cameras, in front of the judge. Again, they would rather uh, stick with uh, the way that they can sort of spin the facts that have already been part of the record and, and spin them the way they want on paper rather than have actual live witnesses. Now, on the other hand, if making a murder hadn't come out and nobody had ever heard of Stephen Avery, he probably would just be rotting away in prison like thousands of other people. Um, so, you know, it cuts both ways. He, he's gotten the kind of attention that many people haven't, um, but that may have hurt him in other ways, like his ability to get an actual hearing to try and uh, demonstrate that the, the evidence is really a, a shaky house of cards. It's, it's about to fall. So when you talk about the narrative then, is that the narrative that was first established by Ken Kratz? Um, a lot of it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they the states kind of cuts it both ways. They don't want to, you know, for Brendan's case, of course, they wanted to use that narrative, um, even though the evidence disproved it, there was no blood that would corroborate this kind of, um, you know, bloody stabbing and the slitting of the throats and all of, all of that, that, that they say Brendan said when actually he was kind of guessing and, and they were feeding him facts to try and make a story fit. Um, but in, of course, in, in Stephen's case, they didn't use at the trial, they didn't use Brendan's actual confession. Um, and so now in their response, uh, I had to kind of laugh at this in, in their response, opposing a hearing now, um, one other thing, again, it's this, this Denny motion is coming up again because, um, Kathleen Zellner wants to point the finger at another named suspect that is Bobby. And uh, in doing that, that implicates the Denny rule, which is, was there motive, opportunity, access, connection to the murder or to the crime? And what they want to try and argue, one of the things that, that Zellner's argued is, look, we, th- there's this computer analysis of the Dassey household computer that she says 
shows these searches that were during a time when only Bobby was home. And uh, they involve essentially torture, murder, porn, um, young women are about the same age being um, mutilated and tortured. And uh, in their response, in the state's response, because that, that of course, is the version that Ken Kratz gave to the world and his press conferences before trial, polluting the entire jury pool everywhere. Um, but in the state's most recent response, they argue, well, that's not enough because no one's said there wasn't any evidence in Stephen's trial that that Teresa Halbach was mutilated or raped. Uh, in fact, they dismissed those charges. They charged him with it, but they could never prove it. So they dismissed it. Now, because they dismissed those charges, they're trying to double speak and argue, hey, this doesn't prove motive because there's there's no direct evidence that um, he was looking for people who were shot in the head or who were you know, bodies burned and all that. Just to clarify the viewers then, who is Bobby in relation to Brendan Dassey? His brother. Okay. All right. So And and he was, by the way, he was the uh, the star witness for the state. I mean, he is the he's the guy that, that said that he saw Teresa drive up, saw her talking with Steve, um, and uh, that he then goes in to take a shower so he can go hunting. Um, and that he watches her walking off towards Stephen's trailer residence front door. And then that's the last he ever saw her. So he's like the last person uh, that they offered, the last person to see her alive. Um, and to which I responded in my closing argument, yeah, because he was a killer. <laughs> But then they objected and said, hey, you, you know, the judge precluded us from pointing the finger at him as a possible suspect. So and that's true. The judge, because we didn't have the, the sort of motive that we that Zellner now has, which is all of these computer searches that show his um, sort of obsession with the, this kind of murder, por torture, porn uh, involving young women. How convenient the suspect becomes the star witness. So what are the specious arguments the state has raised to oppose Kathleen Zellner's August motion? Well, you know, they, they basically, they, I, I wonder sometimes if they, if they think that the, the new judge or current judge that's hearing the motion is just not aware of the facts that were presented, but they're trotting out a lot of the same arguments that they that have already that, that they raised at trial and that we responded to even at trial. So for instance, they say um, that his, uh, what about Avery's DNA on the hood latch? You know, how did Bobby plant that? Um, and in fact, at trial, we demonstrated through their own witnesses that that might've been an innocent transfer by their own crime lab analyst who admitted he was inside the vehicle sampling um, and therefore in an, in an area where we know Stephen's blood was, um, however it was planted, um, and that he never changed gloves. Uh, he, he decided I need to find out what the, what the mileage is and the battery's been disconnected as it always is when it's towed in. And so he gets out of the car, goes to open the, and open the hood and had not changed gloves. 
So he could, we know now with DNA is so sensitive that the potential of transferring it from one location to the next is very risky. And in fact, that's why the protocol is you change gloves. And this guy admitted he made a mistake. So that was one explanation offered at trial. Um, Kathleen Zellner has, has raised additional uh, alternative arguments. There's a, apparently a missing swab that was uh, taken from Stephen um, at one point that that might have been used to plant if the uh, police officers were the ones that planted it. So again, all of that was raised in the past and the state wants to trot this out as somehow uh, inconsistent with the argument that that Bobby might be a reasonable third party suspect. Um, they also made an argument in their in their motion, a response about how um, bones, fragments of bones from virtually every part of the human skeleton were found in Stephen's burn pit. And somehow that that is more incriminating for Stephen than anybody else. But we, we also proved at trial that there was also bones from all over the skeleton human skeleton found in this burn barrel that was, surprise, surprise, behind Bobby Dassey's house, about 150 yards away. And our argument then, and probably still, uh, the best argument is that she, her body was burned somewhere else. And one of these burn barrels was used to scoop up the cremains and dump onto Stephen Avery's burn pit in order to frame him. Um, but unbeknownst to this individual who was doing this, uh, some of the bones were stuck in the muck at the bottom of these, this burn barrel. They're left open to the element. The rain comes in. There's, there's like muddy ash at the bottom. And, and so therefore it was jumbled up. In, a, in other words, there's a jumbled mix of various parts of a skeleton in the burn pit, just like there is a jumbled mix of various parts of the skeleton in the burn barrel. So the fact the argument that oh we found fragments from all over the the skeleton means it must have in the burn pit means he, that's where she must have been burned is 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 totally specious um plus they never found i, I can't remember if it was 60 percent or 40 percent of her entire cremains were ever found the rest were never found to this day have never been found um or if they were found they were part of these quarry bones that unbeknownst to us and unbeknownst to his appellate lawyers were then given back to the Hallbach family uh, without court authority while the appeal was pending and then were disposed of. So at any rate, nowhere near all of her body was ever recovered in Stephen Avery's burn pit. And there was a bullet with Hallbach's DNA found in Bobby's garage. Yeah, now that was another another argument they made is, hey, you know, how does the fact that that Bobby could be a suspect explain this this uh, bullet with her DNA, DNA that was found in the in the Avery garage? But the problem with that was, we showed first of all that bullet was not ever even recovered by the cops until five months after the first week long thorough search of the garage. Somehow it magically appeared five months later when it wasn't there before. Um, and we showed at trial that the test of that bullet was contaminated by the crime lab analyst herself. And so it, normally the test should, be, should have been thrown out, never in her 
what, 30-some year career at that time? Had she ever uh, deviated from the protocol, which says you throw the test out if there's contamination? Um, so they really had to twist things to even allow that evidence, um, that opinion to, to come in that it was her DNA on the bullet. So it, it very well may have been, again, innocently planted um, or in, innocently planted on that bullet through contamination at the crime lab. Again, Kathleen Zellner has, a, has raised other arguments as well. Um, so it, it, that is by no means uh, proof of why you, Bobby couldn't have been involved in this case. So how realistic is it then that these guys are going to get some mercy from the justice system or, as opposed to remaining buried alive? Well, you know, they have two different, um, two different public, I guess, perceptions. Uh, I think Brendan's, frankly, is more sympathetic with most people because most people that look at that case really think he had nothing to do with it. There was and there was no no evidence linking him to it, frankly, other than his confession, which was uh, highly suspect and really had the hallmark of the kind of techniques that produce false confessions. Um, so his is, I think, a more sympathetic um, picture than maybe Stevens. Some people, you know, it's maybe 50-50. Um, they think, well, there is at least circumstantial evidence uh, that was found that links Avery, like his blood in the RAV4. Now, was it planted? You know, that, that's another issue, of course. If it was planted, then, um, then you have to ask yourself why, just like the key. Was the key that was found in his bedroom also planted? If they went to those kinds of lengths, why, you know, who's to say they wouldn't have planted the blood as well? Um, but um, at any rate, a lot of people, I think, agree that, that he should get a new trial. It wasn't fair. Um, you know, if, if the state thinks their case is so strong, let's just air it out now. Let's present everything that they hid from us in the first place, because there was a, there's a lot of evidence that's come out in the last 10 years or so that was not disclosed to either us or his original appellate attorneys. Um, so, you know, but there is this, you know, it's very, very difficult. There's this doctrine of finality in America where they they really do everything they bend over backwards to keep from reversing convictions even in cases where there's evidence of corruption or incompetence crime lab scandals uh, there's a case right now in texas a guy named escobar wh whose uh, dna evidence was so screwed up in this crime lab that even the prosecutor stipulated that he should get a new trial but in Texas, uh, and then the judge agreed, the trial, trial level judge agreed, uh, but the state, uh, I'm sorry, that then has to be reviewed by a higher court in Texas. And the Texas high court reversed that, reinstated his death penalty conviction, even though the, the state and defense had agreed that he should get a new trial. Um, it's only because recently the, the United States Supreme Court reversed that decision and sent it back to Texas that this poor guy may have a chance. So, uh, you know, it is very, very hard to get convictions reversed in America. It's not impossible. There are cases that where it happens, and I'm still hopeful that it's going to happen for both of these guys. Um, but it is undoubtedly it has taken a long time. 
Do you know the present status of Ken Kratz, Kuczynski, and was it Brad Schimmel? Uh, Brad Schimmel is a judge in uh, in Waukesha County near Milwaukee. Um, he was the attorney general, and then he he lost his election, uh, re-election to to that particular position, and then the outgoing governor, who also lost, um, appointed him as judge in Waukesha County, and that's where he's been ever since. Um, Kaczynski was also a judge, but a municipal judge, which is much less serious cases, really just traffic ticket kinds of things where you can find people, not send them to jail. He got into his own problem of um, involving a, a harassment of a clerk and he got charged um he was ultimately acquitted of most of the counts the felony counts um but he was suspended his ability to be a judge was suspended so kratz meanwhile uh has kind of dropped off the uh, face of the earth last i heard was that he may be in las vegas i'm not sure exactly doing what but he is no longer practicing law in wisconsin Wow. Okay, so in general then, American cases, the appeal, it, it's just astronomical how long it takes, isn't it? You know, it is. Um, in, in some cases, you know, we do have procedures in uh, America where you can get um, your case brought back, you know, vehicles that defense attorneys can raise, motions that can be filed that you don't have in some cases uh, or in some countries. Um, Australia, for instance, if if there's evidence of innocence um, after your whole direct appeal is completed, the only way you can get back into court, I believe, is by persuading the attorney general to make a motion to do that. And um, uh, that really doesn't happen all that often either, of course, but... Um, uh, so uh, even though there are there are vehicles in America for for getting your case back into court, when it comes to actually getting reversed, it's very very hard. What's with the prevalence of bogus junk science being used in court? You know that's that's sort of a that's a my entire career has been a pet peeve of mine. That's why I, along with uh, Dean Strang and and Keith Finley, we founded this a nonprofit uh, based in Madison, Wisconsin, the Center for Integrity on Forensic Science, which focuses exclusively on trying to improve and reform the forensic justice or forensic evidence used in our courts. Um, unfortunately, it's not getting any any less used. There are certain types of evidence that are, that are um, being used less and less. So, for instance, um, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, microscopic hair comparison evidence was commonplace. You know, thousands of people were convicted of it. And the idea of it was if we find a, a piece of hair at the, the crime scene or on maybe a, a victim's body, um, and then there's a suspect arrested, we, you know, pluck a reference hair from his or her head, and you look it under a double field microscope, and these so-called experts were then giving their opinions about whether the hairs were consistent with each other. Um, and prosecutors routinely overstated that. And either the experts themselves would overstate what the, what the science could prove or the prosecutors in their closing argument overstated it, talked about, 
you know, these hairs match when in fact that's not what the science ever showed. Um, and in 2015, the FBI, to their credit, they, they went back and they looked at randomly, I think it was 268 cases where their own analysts who, you know, would be the best and the brightest, you know, trained in Langley, were testifying under this hair, a microscopic hair comparison uh, evidence. And they found that 95% of them either falsely or misleadingly overstated the, the strength of what the uh, evidence was and, and what their opinions um, could be. And as a result, the FBI no longer uses that science at all. Unfortunately, you know, something like 95% of criminal cases in America are done at the state level and hair comparison is still used all over the place. Bite mark evidence is another thing. Um, bite mark evidence is completely bogus. Um, study after study has shown that, and yet it's still being used in many state courts to convict people. Um, ballistics is another thing. Ballistics uh, is nowhere near as conclusive as you see on television. Um, and as you might think that you could somehow prove that a particular gun was fired, bullet was fired from a particular gun to the exclusion of every other gun in the world, which is not true. It has never been true. And it certainly is not true today where, where guns are mass produced, um, barrels are, are bored to perfection, machined. Um, and, you know, every, every one that comes off the assembly line is the same as the next. So, you know, I think part of why this evidence, it's not only that it comes in, it's also that it, it is so powerful to jurors. And that's probably partly the media's fault because it's been portrayed in television shows like NCIS or um, Bones or, um, you know, those kinds of um, television shows that, that you can, that of course, are trying to wrap up their whole plot within one hour. <laughs> And so that they they get this evidence and they send it off to their lab and it's it's conclusive evidence of, of guilt. And that is that's never been the case. And in fact, DNA, the one gold standard, um, is even less probative now than it used to be. It's ironic because the better the science has gotten, the less valuable the evidence has proven to be in a particular case of proving guilt because it used to be that you would need a lot of DNA in order to, you know, get a profile that could match somebody. Um, lots of blood, lots of semen. And if you found that, then it was pretty damning evidence, uh, inculpatory evidence of guilt. You know, how is this guy's blood or how is this guy's semen there? Um, but now it's gotten, the tests are so sensitive that just a few cells, you can pick up a full DNA profile that uh, touch DNA, innocent transfer DNA, where I shake your hand, um, you go off and rob a bank and leave a gun, and my DNA is on that gun because I shook your hand. Um, and, and so the, the presence of DNA has actually become less, that's why I say, less conclusive of guilt than it used to be. Uh, so, you know, this is a problem. Uh, it's a problem that I'm, I think we, we need to educate jurors on a case-by-case -case basis. And what we're trying to do at SIFS, SIFSjustice.org, you can see the link uh, down below, um, is to try and weed out that evidence that's, that's just so bogus that jurors should never even hear it. 
and and then hopefully then it's up to the attorneys to try and persuade the court and the jury as to you know with evidence that's not reliable explain why what about the read technique has that been canned you know it has been uh severely weakened uh, because the number two in america the number two police training outfit um, has abandoned it they refuse to train officers in that technique anymore because they have uh, concluded and studies have shown that it yeah it does get guilty people to confess but it has a high incidence at least too high too risky high incidence of false confessions confessions that we know um, through dna exonerations the, the suspect was falsely confessing um, and then later dna proved that so it's gotten weakened it's still kicking around there though and it's um it's kind of on a case-by-case -case basis where lawyers have to learn you know how the technique is done where its weaknesses are and and present that to a court and then ultimately if the court allows it then to the jury to explain to them why it's not reliable looks like we just got a couple of viewer questions before we finish ray jay's asked is wisconsin unique in this type of controversial case or has this and Rittenhouse case highlighted Wisconsin. Wisconsin justice <laughs> or lack of it. You know, um, Wisconsin has had its share of, of strange cases, let's face it. You know, the, the Jeffrey Dahmer, um, Rittenhouse, uh, Avery Dassey cases. Even before that, the, the Alfred Hitchcock movie Psycho was based on an actual case in Wisconsin. Um, and there are many more, but it's, it's also, I mean, we, we are a very big country, you know, approaching 350 million people in America now. And, um, you can find these kinds of cases everywhere. You find some outrageous, unbelievable ones. There's one going on now in, in South Carolina involving, um, uh, a, a lawyer, um, a lawyer whose father, grandfather and great grandfather were elected over and over and over as uh, district attorneys in, in a small county in South Carolina. Well, now he's being charged with the murder of his wife and son and with trying to hire somebody to kill himself so that his surviving son could get the life insurance policy. Um, just, you know, a bizarre story that was is a Hollywood script. And um, so, you know, you, you see these kinds of cases and lots of different places. The UK's had some strange ones as well. Um, but we are, you know, obviously a very big country and we've got a lot of guns and there's lots of different ways that uh, Americans have figured out that they can uh, kill people, unfortunately. Next question. Was D.A. Binger involved in the Avery case? I, I think he means... Uh, that's a misspelling. I think he means the DA that was in the Rittenhouse case. Uh, and no, he was not involved in Avery's case or Dassey's. All right. All right, Jerry, do you want to tell the viewers then, you know, about, a bit about your book and, and where they can find it? Yeah, my book's called Illusion of Justice Inside of Making a Murder in America's Broken System. You can find it on Amazon, Amazon UK, um, uh, lots of different Amazons all over the world, but also directly from the publisher, HarperCollins. Um, you can find it in libraries all over the place, something like a, a thousand different libraries from Perth to 
Stockholm. Um, so it it talks not just about the Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey cases, but also about similar it, types of issues that I've seen throughout my career, cases I've worked on. And then it's got some suggestions on, on what the individual can do to try and help improve the system of justice in their own community. Um, since you've been saying that, I've just noticed a couple more questions have come in. Okay. Um, was a search warrant issued for Bobby's property? Uh, no, there was, um, interestingly, the, uh, one of the things that I meant to mention earlier in the, in the state's response to Zellner's latest motion was that this bullet, for instance, that this, this bullet that was found in the garage with supposedly with, um, Teresa's DNA on it came from the bullet, the gun that was found in Steven's bedroom, which, uh, oddly enough, had a was hanging above his bed and it had a little piece of masking tape that said Steve's, you know, as, as if so we want to make sure that you realize this was his gun. When in fact, it wasn't his gun. It was the, the owner's gun, the owner of the, the um, trailer that he was renting. Um, but anyway, they, they tried to argue uh, in this motion and a trial that this bullet had to have come from that gun and no other gun. When in fact, that isn't true. It, that gun was a 22 Glenfield Marlin rifle. It is the most common gun made in the world, millions of them. And the very same make and model was found in Bobby Dassey's house, the very same one. And it was never tested. It was never really compared you know, to see whether that might have been the source of that bullet. So um, there was also... Uh, a deer that supposedly was roadkill that was hanging in the garage that um, they never tested the 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 blood in the garage uh, where Bobby Dassey lived, which was right next door to Stevens, uh, to see whether maybe Teresa's DNA might have been found in that garage. So, you know, they did they did see some things from that residence, but they did not do the kind of thorough search that they did in Stephen Avery's. Last question then is whether the Innocence Project is involved with these guys. The Innocence Project is not involved uh, with either one of them. There was a conflict. Um, they were involved, the Innocence Project in Wisconsin was involved in Stephen's first case where he was exonerated, the 1985 one. Um, but they have not been involved uh, in directly in either one of their cases since. They could not be involved um, in Brendan's case because of conflicts of interest. Uh, but instead, the, the Northwestern uh, Center on um, Wrongful Conviction Involving Youth at that time um, took over Brendan's case. Two very good lawyers, um, Laura Nyrider and, and Steve Drizzen, uh, represented Brendan. But the quote-unquote innocence projects have not been directly involved. All right, Jerry, it's always a great pleasure. We salute the fantastic work you are doing. And you take care, my friend. Thanks for spending time with us. All right, thanks. Good seeing you Cheers. again. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. What a great guy. Thanks for all your questions, everybody. That is the end of Section 2. Tomorrow night, we've got James Fox going out on YouTube at 6 p.m. It is a two-hour, no, it's a one-hour podcast on UFOs. Evidence of UFOs, aerial, what is it, UAPs, aliens. And then what have we got on the weekend? We've got a podcast going out on Sunday night at 6 p.m. as well.
Thanks, Patreons. Take care out there. Cheers for watching. Much love and respect.